Welcome to Semper Connected, a podcast dedicated to sharing Marine Corps recruiting-related information and knowledge. I'm your host, Chris Mayfield. I'm a Chief Warrant Officer 5, currently serving on the National Training Team at Marine Corps Recruiting Command. On today's show, we connect with Master Gunnery Sergeant Jared Cobb, the MCRIC G3 Chief. The majority of the episode focuses on the theme Back to the Basics. However, we also dive into his role as the MCRIC G3 Chief and the path that led him to this billet. Additionally, he provides some insight into the multi-agency initiative, Recruit the Recruiter. Recruiting is a demanding duty, and our success ultimately depends on filling each sector with talented and capable Marines. The Recruit the Recruiter initiative is focused on finding these Marines through command outreach engagements that raise awareness in the FMF ultimately leading to more Marines volunteering for recruiting duty. These Marines will not only help fill your sectors, they have statistically higher success rates. I challenge you to listen to this episode with an open mind and find ways in your own fighting position to improve in the basics. I hope you are enjoying the show. Don't forget to review the show notes for more information on each episode and hit that subscribe button. Also, leave us a review and share the show with a friend. Until next time, Semper Connected. To begin this podcast, I would like to highlight similarities of the Fleet Marine Force and recruiting using two likely familiar examples. Example one, to succeed on range 400 at 29 Palms, you must effectively maneuver, communicate, lead, work as a team, and mass firepower on an objective using combined arms. Range 400 is recruiting in warfighting terminology. Example two, every two years, units must complete a Marine Corps combat readiness evaluation, also known as the McCree. A component of the McCree is a timed 20 mile hike. At the end of the hike, you're not evaluated on who finished first or an average of strong and weak, but how you finished as a team. Ultimately, you're evaluated on when the last Marine crosses the line. Because of this, your unit approach to training and leadership is different. How does this translate in recruiting? At the RS, imagine if you couldn't make mission off the heroics of one or a few strong RSSs. What if each RSS had to make their assigned monthly mission for you to make mission? What if making mission Each month depended on finishing 11 of 11, 12 of 12, 13 of 13. Would that change the mission day you pick? Would that change the way you analyze structure and assign personnel? Would it change your C-gap analysis? How would it impact your training plans? How would it change the way you engage and support your Marines? Is this an unrealistic expectation? My answer, no it is not. I have seen it. We expect every RS to make mission each month. Why wouldn't the same hold true for each RSS? Sure, there are some differences. However, it is an achievable feat. It requires 100% focus and unity of effort. 
specifically from the command group. If you want to be changed, you must be challenged. Recruiting duty will challenge you. Recruiting duty will change you. This podcast was recorded in support of the Fiscal Year 2022 National Operations and Training Symposium. The theme of this year's knots is Back to the Basics. This theme was deliberately chosen to reinforce the importance of systematic recruiting and engaged leadership. This is a lengthy show. However, I think it is packed with some good insights and best practices. Consistent recruiting success depends on engaged leadership and systematic recruiting. Leadership requires daily application. So does systematic recruiting. There is a quote I often use in some of our formal courses. Leadership develops daily, not in a day. The same holds true for systematic recruiting. Systematic recruiting is not a get-rich-quick scheme. Persistent daily investments are required to yield long-term sustainable results. Systematic recruiting is likened to a quote from Usain Bolt. I trained four years to run nine seconds, and people give up when they don't see results in two months. Hey listeners, if you haven't done so already, go and check out MICRIC Connections. It's your one-stop shop for Marine Corps recruiting-related resources, such as useful links, lessons learned, best practices, and discussion boards for sharing great ideas. Masagani, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, sir. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. Good to see you, too. All right. Well, let's jump right into this. <laughs> tell, us, uh, tell us where you're from. I am from a, a small town on the border of Canada in northern Michigan, the upper, upper peninsula called Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. Born and raised up there. Marie, Michigan. That's what they call the UP, right? The upper peninsula? Yes, sir. I was, uh, I, I'm what one would call a UPER. A UPER. For the upper peninsula, UP. Right on. Well, aside from probably being up there and wanting to get away. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right. From the UP. Can you tell us a little bit about why you joined the Marine Corps? Um, Yeah, absolutely. I joined the Marine Corps a long time ago, back in 1994. I joined the delayed entry program. The reason I joined the military was um, back going all the way back to eighth grade, seventh, eighth grade, when they rolled the TVs in and we were watching Desert Storm uh, and learning about that as it occurred, uh, that planted the seed that I was definitely going in the military. Yeah, that was a pretty big commercial that they would play on the nightly news, watching those bombs drop down the onto those buildings and things. We saw some technology that we didn't know existed. I think the last time we had probably seen anything to that scale would have been during Vietnam, which was yes, sir. a big difference. So, yeah, from then, from then on, I knew that I was going to join the military. I was a shopper uh, as an, as an applicant when I became a rising senior, I, I, I met with all of the services and then settled, uh, on the Marine Corps. You know, that's interesting that you bring that up, that, that you were a shopper, you know, back then it probably wasn't the way it is now, but people can go online and request information for the military, right? And that's not just the Marine Corps unless they go to marines.com. But if they go on uh, military.com or what have you request information, that's going to all the branches, that's right. And it really comes down to first to contact. And those that get that hot lead and follow up with them and make contact first 
typically has the best success at, at getting them in. I, I, great point. And as a recruiter, I know that. I don't remember who called me first. I think, uh, and I might have been a PPC or not, but I'm pretty sure I was the ASFAB list guy that was a, a decent QT that said plan military. So a couple of days after my junior year, I got a call from all four branches. I immediately set appointments with all four of them. Uh, I settled on the Navy uh, and I was going to join the Navy. I was on my way into the Navy office to tell them I was joining. And uh, as I looked as a standard recruiting substation, the two doors were right next to each other. And the uh, Marine Corps office was directly to my left. And it was a deep office. And then right next to that, then immediately in the next door was the Navy recruiter. And his office was very shallow. So I could see him. Uh, and as he saw me walk in, he put his cigarette out in the, in the desk drawer, which was like, just like a movie. Um, pretty, pretty heavy set. Uh, nice guy with heavy set, big mustache. And as I was walking towards seeing that, I looked into my left into the, the door at Sergeant Dunn. And he was way back at his desk because his office, like I said, was deep. And he's toweling off after a uh, PT session, whatever he was doing. Big, big studly guy, uh, poster boy Marine. And I was like, nope, I'm going here. Walked in, made an immediate left, walked into that office and uh, committed to them. So when I came home and told my mom that, yeah, I didn't join the Navy today. I joined the Marine Corps. So that's what got me there. But uh, other than that, I, I listened to all their spiels and, and uh, uh settled on or finally settled on the Marine Corps because of the look of the Marine. <laughs> that's, that's uh that's a very cool story that just explains that, you know, you got to look the part and don't be smoking in your office. Right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. They don't do that much anymore. Not even, I don't even think the sailors do that too much anymore. Right. Okay. Well, we don't join the Marine Corps to be rec- on recruiting. Obviously you are a career recruiter, you know, before recruiting, what, what did your career in the Marine Corps look like? So I told my recruiter I just wanted to work with my hands. Uh, he put me in aircraft maintenance, and I was a C-130 uh, engine mech in the power line. Uh, so, and I enjoyed, I, I really, really enjoyed that job. Uh, once I went to school, once I got finished with school and stuff, I got to do that job in Okinawa for a year. I had to do that job back in Cherry Point for uh, three more years. So a total of five years uh, before I went on recruiting duty, I got to work on airplanes and, uh, I was pretty good at it. I think, I think I was pretty good at it. I was, uh, you know, quality control, whatnot. Um, but, uh, yeah, I left that behind. Right. On. So five years wrenching on the, on the birds in the fleet. Now the, what's that entry training pipeline like for an aviation mechanic? How long were you in that pipeline? So obviously you go to MCT and then what was your MOS school length? And did you go to multiple schools? Right. So I was, I was lucky. Yeah. I went to multiple schools. I was pretty lucky with my A school as, as most air wingers, we go to two different schools. Um, and the schoolhouse that's currently in, uh, Pensacola that does most of all of, uh, a school for the Marine Corps and the, and the Navy was in Millington, Tennessee, which is like in the middle of nowhere out by Memphis, uh, Tennessee, and I got there and I wasn't there for seven weeks. I think I picked up in the first week, did a five or six week course and I was moved on again. Not so lucky at C school when I went to Cherry Point, which is now a C-130 specific school. Uh, I think I waited there for about two months as a Matt Marine. It was a brand new schoolhouse. So we buffed the floors every day over and over again of a brand new floor. 
um, for two months waiting for that class and, uh, and then did three months, two or three months in that class. So it was total class time. You look at, it was about four and a half, five months. You know, I was just at Cherry Point a few week, weekends ago with my wife, and we were walking through the barracks. I was just kind of showing her where I came up as a young Marine, as an engineer. My first duty station was Cherry Point MWSS 274. Mm-hmm. So we're walking through the barracks, and, like, it really hurt my heart to see that the decks were not buffed the way they were, <laughs> you know, back in the early 90s. And, and I was explaining to her, because she likes to talk about the commercials, and she was talking about how the lava monster was the one that she remembers. And the one we probably remember, the one I do at least, was on the chessboard when he was being knighted. Yes, absolutely. And, and I've always joked about the commercial was very misleading because they should have had a Lance Corporal in the back buffing that chessboard, you know? <laughs> it's a very violent machine. It's a very violent machine that uh, I'm not sure is in use today, but I know it. it uh, I took a few beatings from it. Well, after two months in Matt, you should have been pretty proficient. I was good at it, yeah. yeah. It was, it was uh, smooth sailing. So you were aircraft mechanic. You did that for five to six years in the Marine Corps. When did you come on recruiting duty? 2000. Okay, so in 2000 you came on recruiting duty? Mm-hmm. All right, so now we're just kind of fast forward to where we sit today. Yes. You're a master gunny. You've, you've been in a plethora of billets, which we'll dive into a little bit later, but currently you are what's called the MICRIC Ops Chief. Yes, sir. And for the listeners that may not understand what that is, or maybe they've got the idea of what a RS Ops Chief does with handling shipping and things of that nature, can you kind of orient us on what it is that the MICRIC ops chief does. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it can, it can even be more confusing because at times or in, in some things you read on the MICRIC G3 chief, which is nothing more than saying the MICRIC ops chief. Uh, I've always been fond going back a few billets of being an ops chief. Uh, so I, I tend to go that way, but there's three main things that I do. So internally I work for the Colonel, uh, uh, Colonel Warren Cook, and I am there to support not only him, but all the sections that he runs. So we have an enlisted operations. We have officer programs. We have uh, PSR, prior service recruiting, which are all our current ops. And then we have uh, our plans and research department, which is our future ops. And then we have training and systems, uh, commonly known as TSI, which house our NTT uh, and our uh, McCris cell. And then he also has the recruiter school, which obviously has uh, a peer of mine out there. And my job is to support him by supporting the lieutenant colonels and the chiefs that run those sections. So I don't go into shipping. I don't do the things that you would think a normal ops chief does. I'm there to support and make sure that the big wickets that those sections are supposed to hit for the colonel get hit and help in any way I can. That's, that's kind of the internal. Right. And then I'm also in, it's the most, it's the largest section of MICRIC. It's half of the, the MICRIC personnel at this headquarters. So another billet description of mine is I'm in charge to take care of all the enlisted uniform Marines. Uh, Cause we have some junior ones in some sections. And so I, I try to do the best I can. Obviously I work with a lot of peers in my billet. There's three other master gunnies that, that are part of the G3. Uh, and, and we work great together. Second part is externally. I'm expected to be able to go to any floor of this manpower building uh, and talk recruiting and represent recruiting and represent General Bohm's uh, stance and narratives on on certain situations. Uh, 
level load shipping versus JJazz trimester phasing is one thing. I my, my job is to be able to go into any room and be able to discuss that, understanding the RCG's intent and representing MICRIC. So that could be anywhere here. It could be TCOM, which is also on this base, but it could be other services, MEPCOM. Uh, there's, there's a lot of different entities. More for res are some of the things that, that I've had an opportunity to work with. That's pretty fun. That's, that's an interesting part of the job because uh, I get to interface with a lot of a lot of things that you don't get to touch in traditional metric billets. Uh, so those are the two main things for those someday that might get my job. That's what they're going to be doing. Uh, I also over the past year have been put in charge of the recruit the recruiter program which has been in development for the first nine years or nine months uh, of this FY. And then for the last three months, we went uh, operational with it. And I'm the lead on that, which is, it's, it's more like an additional duty. It takes a lot of time. It's a big program. Uh, and there's a lot of moving parts to it, but uh, I'm going to hand that off to the next, to the, to the next Micric Ops chief. So that's what I do. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. You know, the, the first two, are pretty static and that's routine for whoever fills that billet and recruit the recruiter. If that maintains, if that stays in your lane and it's successful and it does, it achieves the aims that we're looking for, it will continue and likely stay with the MICRIC ops chief as well. For the listeners who may not understand what you're talking about when we say recruit the recruiter, what, what does that mean? And what is the goals of that program? Okay. So most people are familiar with the HIST, all right. And the, the HIST used to be, or, or was, Commonly, a group of people that went out looking for recruiters and drill instructors and marine security guards. Uh, now the HIST is a list that comes out that the monitors churn through to find the people that are going to get assigned without volunteering to uh, one of the SDAs. Unfortunately, uh, the list is massive. It's usually around 7,000. It's whittled down to 7,000 assignable Marines somewhere in there. And... Um, most of that list will go towards recruiting because the drill instructor, SDA, and Marine Security Guard basically are all volunteers. Um, there's a few that, that get told to go to that, but they really don't have a problem, nor do they have the volume. They need 600 drill instructors a year. They need 200 Marine Security Guards a year, and they need about 1,200 recruiters a year. So they only get two to three to 400 volunteers per year, and that lack of volunteerism for the institution, for the Marine Corps, is causing this big hist list. So those 7,000 Marines I mentioned on the hist can be frozen from anywhere with 5 to 12 months, and they can't PCS or PCA. So as units are losing people to EAS, because that's really the market, they can't get replacements. Um, so it's, it's putting a burden on the, the institution in, in that fashion. Also, the hist list, uh, cause, it's a lot of time to fill out the realms and the SDA packages that are required. Um, so for example, if, if you had 42 Marines, uh, in one example we had uh, get histed in one unit, that's about 840 man hours from the time you hit print to the time you turn those in that the whole command is, is working on. So there's, there's a unit issue then too. Uh, and then the third thing for, for the MICRIC is the less volunteers, the less quality of life. So Jammers, who does our, our quality of life studies, has shown empirically that volunteers uh, present or, or have a better time on recruiting duty. All things equal. 
right? So me and you are in this uh, uh, RSS together. You're a volunteer. I'm a volunteer. We both uh, work six days a week. I'm going to have a better time on recruiting duty than you because of a myriad of reasons. So all of that uh, kind of laid out the need for an increase in volunteerism. So General Bohm uh, ta- tasked me with getting with MMEA, who's ultimately responsible for getting us all our recruiters. Like we don't have to go out and find our recruiters. They'll give us the, the 1200 a year that that's, that's on them. But um, I said, Hey, I'm willing to general bone said, Hey, I'm willing to put some money towards it. I'm willing to put some manpower towards it. Some 84 12s uh, to get after this issue and start creating awareness that there are some benefits to recruiting duty that the myths and the challenges aren't as bad as you would think. So the whole program is basically like a high school community college program. I have a coordinator that are that's on each coast right now. A mass aren't that's a slated 84 12. They are, uh, they, their daytime jobs, the SOI liaison, but now that's about 50 or 49% of their job and recruit the recruiters 51%. And each one of them have an AO uh, that's chopped up into sectors, just like uh, a regular uh, RSS would be. So for instance, on the, on the West Coast, Pendleton's Sector A, uh, uh, Yuma's Sector C, but in Sector A, we have a unit master plan that says by population, here is where our market is, the corporals and the sergeants. And so if you have a certain amount of population in your unit, you're a priority one. So for the, those who are on recruiting duty that are listening to this, they're, they're probably getting the gist of how we prioritize. And we go after the priority ones. We uh, talk to the command, the career planners, and we present our program and the incentives to recruiting duty and ask them at the end of that uh, initial visit to sit down with their Marines wherever they want to in the next 120 days. So if they want us to come to a set of bleachers, if they want to come to the theater, if they want us to hang out in the, the squadron hangar bay and talk to those that those Marines about the benefits of recruiting. And then we, we can't obviously put them on recruiting duty. So we push them, anyone that we influence uh, to volunteer, we push them back to the career planners. This is a win for the units and the commanders, because uh, what some people might not know is every, 05 and 06 commander is on mission this year for retention. And you can't have, or let me back that up, for every volunteer for recruiting, a retention action must be taken. You're either going to reenlist or you're going to extend. So really bringing out a tool that helps those commanders get after the retention mission, that saves them some time, that helps the institution free up some Marines, but ultimately are going to send Marines that want to be on recruiting duty out on a recruiting duty. Uh, I want to go on record. I'm not saying they'll be better salesmen. I'm not saying they're going to be better recruiters. Um, they're going to get some, some really top shelf training at the recruiter school and some, a lot of guidance from grade 8412s, the RSs and, but, but volunteer, non-volunteer, their performance is going to be how we train and, and mentor and lead them. Yeah. Thanks for that overview. Uh, the data supports that volunteers will perform better than non-volunteers. And I want to go on record as saying that if you don't volunteer, that does not mean you're not going to succeed. Right. It just means that studies show that you may not have as good a time as those that would have volunteered. Right. You pointed out we need 1,200 new recruiters each year because you lose about a third of your force every year. So you got to replace that third. 
in your talks, I am confident that the reason the other two SDAs don't need to be histed is because they're mostly volunteers. Yes. Is because most Marines understand what a drill instructor does because they were with them for three months. They understand what MSG is because they've grown up kind of seeing the embassies and the Marines at, at HMX one and things of that nature. So they understand that. And all they hear are the horror stories or most of them hear the horror stories from recruiting duty through these visits to the sectors and doing class talks, if you will, and, and raising awareness, are you seeing, or is it has enough time passed to where we're able to remove the myths? Yes. Recruiting duty is extremely challenging. It's going to be hard work. But at the end of that are better promotion opportunities and better skill sets that you otherwise wouldn't have if you went on other SDAs. Right. There's there's a, a ton of myths. Uh, I don't disagree. And I, I've been in on a lot of these. Uh, I've been out with MMEA doing a lot of these road shows and, and trying to pedal recruit the recruiter to the commands and things like that. That's our first issue, right, is uh, frankly the staff NCOs. Many that have been on recruiting duty, they don't believe in it. They don't believe uh, it's a it's a good SDA. You know, there's of course all the myths and things like that. We haven't talked to enough Marines in the Marine Corps yet to say, "Hey, here's what we're all about on recruiting duty." Um, and I, half of them probably wouldn't believe us right now, right? I'm coming out there telling you, throwing up a, a PowerPoint, and saying, "Hey, look at all the great things you can get from recruiting duty." They all do know that if they don't volunteer, it's highly likely they're going to be on the hist. Whether or not they, it, and you're talking over a couple of years. So if you're going to stick around the Marine Corps, I think culture says to be successful long term in the Marine Corps, you have to do an SDA. So, so that's out there. So they, then they know that it's not just something that I should do or that would be fun to do. It's, it's career enhancing as it's almost required in some MOSs to, to have that. What I foresee and what the real long goal is, is right now the volunteers that are coming in aren't going to school to FY23. They'll leave FY26. And my hope is that they leave, a higher percentage of them leave with that satisfaction and that self-responsibility. Like, hey, that was really hard, but I put myself in that situation. I volunteered for this up front that they can turn around now as staff sergeants. They volunteered as a corporal five years ago. And they can look at those corporals and say, hey, this is something you might want to get ahead of. If you volunteer, there's a lot of incentives. And there's a lot of things that you can get from that. Um, and if you don't, you're still, running, you're still rolling the dice that the HIST is going to get you. And we've designed the program. The, the, the financial benefits aren't me. It's not MCRIC that, that provided that. Um, volunteers get $10,000 just for volunteering. Uh, but we did put in this year a recruiting station incentive. So... They can, uh, there's a MAR admin, 350.21 out there that shows what's available for them to volunteer for, for FY23. So we're tailor made it, making it to what they might want. And uh, that seems to be really catching fire. We've had 300 volunteers so far, which is way ahead of where they were last year. Um, but if you hissed, you get none of that. You just get to go on recruiting duty, and you're going to get uh, probably travel and adventure or potentially a binding request if there's still room. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, what it looks like in two years, three years, see if the the aim, you know, the actual hits the aim that we're yes, looking sir. for. Again, statistical probabilities say that it's going to be successful. Uh, Marines are going to volunteer. And I, and I know there's some 
out on the streets that didn't volunteer and and they're upset that those that do are getting an additional 10k or they got a geographic preference at the end of the day we have to fill sectors yes and if that incentive pushes them over the edge to volunteer i'll take that over the person that i have to force because either way we're going to get a body right that's exactly right and what that's and that's what we found as we started developing this program is that marines just didn't know why they should volunteer and they didn't know when they should volunteer because there's very specific time frames uh all driven by manpower's um battle rhythm annual battle rhythm and how they how they re-enlist people and what makes you f-tap s-tap all that all that uh manpower stuff um we had to fit it into that. And that's what we're trying to teach the Marines. Again, we can't, they can, they can raise their hand at the end of one of these, what we call awareness briefs and we can't really do anything with them. They have to go to the career planner, but they're now educated. Like, Hey, this is when I have to, this is when I have to make actions. And, and we're learning as we go, we're going to tighten up our plan next year uh, and get ahead of a few things that we, we thought we were on time this year, a little late. So it's been a fun experience. I've never put anything this big together, so it's it's been fun. Of and I've gotten to uh, work with some really great people from upstairs and manpower. Awesome. Well, thanks for that overview, and thanks for telling us a little bit about your current billet and what the Mickrick Ops Chief does. You know, let's kind of now go back to the beginning. You came on recruiting duty. Walk us through the previous billets that you held while you've been on recruiting duty that ultimately prepared you for where you currently sit. Yeah, I don't know if all of them did. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and it's uh, every experience I've had on recruiting duties probably obviously led to this point, and, and I tried to draw on a lot of it uh, in this job because I have to bounce around uh, between enlisted and officer and things like that. So uh, I came out in 2000. I was a recruiter in Elkhart, Indiana. I uh, just uh, I knew the sergeant major that was going to that RS, so he brought me out. I, I didn't want to go back to Michigan, and I didn't know where I wanted to go. Um, but I did a couple of years as a recruiter. Uh, then that became an RSS, and I was put in charge of it. Uh, I was a zero and two for a minute. Then it was a one and two for a minute uh, while I ran it. Uh, I got an opportunity to go down to Kokomo, Indiana, and run a, a one and five for a while. That then changed to one and three. It was a lot of a lot of changes back then. Uh, and then I only did that for a year. And I put my hand in the air to go up to RSS Fort Wayne when I became a 12. So you're talking about 2004-ish, um, which was a, at the time a 1-6. Uh, definitely a huge challenge. It was uh, a rough couple years in there. We were making mission. Uh, it was broken when I got there, and we fixed it. But it was during the time when Mickrick missed mission. I was running a one and six, had a newborn at home. Um, and uh, so it was a very stressful couple of years, but uh, a lot of growing there uh, on management and leadership. Uh, for personal reasons, I asked to leave Indianapolis. And at the time, everyone was homestead, and I thought I was going to be there for, for the rest of my life. Um, but 2005, late 2005, I ended up going to RS Raleigh. Uh, and they gave me uh, RSS Goldsboro for about a year and a half. Uh, that was a pretty challenging station. And then I went to MEPS for uh, about 15 months after that. And then to run RSS Raleigh proper in the city station. So at this point I've ran five RSSs. Um, 
and they varied. Uh, Fort Wayne and Raleigh were both metro. Uh, the rest of them were country, uh, way out in, in the middle of nowhere kind of areas, eastern North Carolina and, and the Midwest. So a, a lot of experience there. And then um, my time at MEPS was super easy, I say. Um, a, it's, it's a great job. A lot of people want to do that. A lot of people have done that. But uh, it was during the buildup, so nobody really cared what my QSIS was. I can't recall in the 15 months I was there that anybody ever talked to me about IST failures, admin discrepancies, or any of the like. Um, uh, we didn't have thumbprints. We didn't have, we mailed our uh, equip stuff in and uh, they would call us and pen change it for us. Just all sorts of uh, goodness that is now gone. MEPCOM got real savvy and uh, kind of slowed us down, but uh, super, super fun job um, and, and a real break. And we'll kind of come back to that, that break, and how important that was. But from there, uh, after running RSS Raleigh, uh, I did not want to run an RSS anymore. I was at about 90 some mission letters and uh, there was a bunch of master gunnies in Raleigh at the time. So there was no room for me as a, as a senior gunny. So I requested to leave, to go anywhere to get a billet. And they sent me to Louisville to be the ops chief. Um, extremely tough command at the time. Uh, it's a great place now. It was a pretty toxic place. And that was a really, really hard three years. Uh, I felt for three years I was bailing water. Uh, I was doing the OPSO and the ops chief job, and I just learned a ton, just a ton of, of A, how to handle stress, uh, but B, how to really work at that level all the way from, you know, analyzing numbers to take in NWAs to contracting the right people and shipping because I wasn't, and nor should anybody, uh, I would highly recommend this, B, well, the ops does contracting and the, the ops chief does shipping. It, you're, you're a foolish ops chief if you don't know how to contract, if you don't know how to uh, drive production and take NWAs and, and really work through that with staff and CIEs, and you only sit over there and make sure your even flows get out the door. And that's super important. Don't get me wrong. And uh, it, it can be an easy or uh, it can be challenging to get done, but it's only half of an operation section. And so a chief is not the master of half in my eyes. So that was, that got me, uh, that got me really, really spun up on, on the RS level and, uh, how to work and operate in a command group. Uh, from there, it earned me a, the opportunity to be slated for the Eastern recruiting region where I was the, uh, assistant operations chief at first became the operations chief, um, worked for a, a really tough Colonel. I, I love to this day. He was my first RSCO, um, but I learned real fast not to be bored or look bored around him because he was going to give you something to do. Um, and between him and uh, General Reynolds, who was the CG at the time, they had me analyzing all sorts of things. Female attrition, the pull-ups were coming up, uh, female pull-ups, the change to, to female pull-ups was coming up. Um, they wanted to integrate uh, all sorts of things. And, and I really learned how to dig into data and brief commanders, brief uh, colonels and CGs. Um, at the same time, this, this one was the one that got me ready for, for this job mainly because I worked with outside agencies. Up until this, as long-winded as the story is, up until this part, I'd never worked outside of MCRIC. Um, and, and when you get to a region, if you ever have the opportunity to, uh, for any listeners out there, is you work with RTR very closely. 
Um, so they are, they're kind of your, your stepbrother. Uh, so you love each other, but you fight all the time kind of thing. It's a, it's a love hate relationship. Uh, you work with Marforez, uh, Mickrick with, uh, RA reserve affairs, uh, just a, a myriad of other organizations outside of recruiting. So again, you, you find yourself and I found myself as a representative, you're, you're carrying the water for recruiting and you learn really quick. Don't say the wrong thing. Uh, it's not always your opinion, but if it's your commander's opinion, that's, that's the one we're going with. You, there's times for you to give your opinion uh, and, and do what's best for the recruiter and the staff. And so I see that's really what I was always, I was always, always focused on. Let's not put another rock in their pack, so to speak, um, and, and just do what's best for them. From there, I left, uh, got the great opportunity and, and one of the highlights of my career to be the RI of uh, RS Louisville, uh, really the recruiter instructor is is the highlight. Uh, I like Louisville. Um, I obviously ended up spending seven years there because I was four years as the RI, but just a tremendous uh, job being an RI. And uh, that was the second one that really got me ready for this because as, as I describe the things I do here, it's more of a management and relationship management gig here, which to me was what being an RI is. Uh, you're the expert, get it. And, and I'd tons of time and, and expertise behind me. It, but making sure that the XO is not mad because the ops is not doing this because the staff and so I see forgot to do that and making sure that everybody in that command group and everybody uh, at the staff and so I see level at least understood why the other, why things happened uh, and being able to explain to them like, yeah, this is why he or she's asking for this. This is why this policy is being put in place. Um, and jumping because everyone has very different lenses in that group that I just described. And so I learned as an RI that, that you have to really be able to float all of those positions, speaking from doctrine, speaking from policy, not just your opinion, um, to make all of these personalities understand what the other one's doing and why it's important. Uh, what a fun, fun job. It's, it's hard. Uh, and as we've seen out there, it's, it's hard, but definitely – an amazing job uh, and had the, had the opportunity to do it for four years. And I think that's uh, probably made me the most successful at this job because that's how I treat uh, up and down the hallway here. For those who've never been to the Mars Center, we're all kind of lying down the hallway, um, making sure that, because there's a lot of irons in the fire here and what one section's doing, they feel is the most important. Um, just like the XO at an RS thinks what he's doing is the most important or she's doing is the most important. And there's other sections that are doing things as equally important when you, when you kind of back up and, and open your, your view and your aperture. Um, so I spent a lot of time doing that. So those last two uh, jobs, uh, which made up seven years of the last uh, 10, really got me ready for this. Um, and, and there were some beast jobs. But uh, truly the favorite one, staff and sweat obviously. And I spent 16 of my 20 years at the RS level. So I'm, I have a very a fondness for that level. I have a fondness for that, that fight uh, at that level. And uh, it's a good time. It's yep. been a good time. Yeah, thanks for sharing your story. All of those billets paid 
contributions to the skills that you have now, the experience that you have now, and it's paying dividends at, at MCRIC. Because you have those different skill sets, you're able to maneuver amongst the different sections, be able to manage the different personalities, and all you know, aligned with ultimately the goal of making mission and, and getting it done the, the most effective and efficient way. You came on recruiting in 20, 2000, yes, 2000. It's now 2021. So 21 years have passed since you first came on recruiting duty. And I'm confident throughout that 21 years that our focus has shifted from time to time based on the recruiting environment. You spoke about a time when you were the MEPS liaison. Nobody cared about your CUSA stats. Nobody cared about a PED. Nobody cared about an IST failure. And then that became the focal point where 48 of 48 were going to make contracting and shipping. It was assumed, yes. And so you had to shift fires to something else to be the discriminator so that you could figure out who the top performers were. Yes, sir. And now we're kind of shifting back to probably those earlier times to where the main thing is contracting and shipping, yet we're still sometimes focused on those things. And while those are all important and someone can make a justification on why low IST scores are important, on why admin errors being reduced are important, you could justify all of those things. Because if you couldn't justify them, we wouldn't track them, right? They inform the decisions somewhere. Yes, sir. But in the words of General Journey, it is extremely important to keep the main thing the main thing. Yes, sir. And that's kind of where I'm leading with what the topic of our conversation today is moving forward is back to the basics, right, and kind of what that looks like. And in preparations of the National Operations and Training Symposium where all the commanders are going to descend on a location and kind of do some problem solving and get some training and work on some things, the theme of this year's knots is back to the basics. In conversations with you throughout our travels, and and I really love doing these podcasts with different people because you learn things about them that you otherwise wouldn't have learned. Like we've been on multiple trips. We've smoked some cigars together. We've done some things together. And I've learned more about you here on a personal level and even some of your career stuff that I had not known to this point. So I'm I'm glad to to have sat down with you and got some (laughs) of these details out of you. What was not brought out is in that 21 years – You've also maintained your marriage yes. to, uh, to, to one person. That's, that's a huge win. <laughs> it absolutely is. It's, uh, uh, and surprising that she stayed with me. My, my wife, Nicole, uh, we had been married for two years when I got uh, assigned to recruiting duty. She was uh, 20 years old when we came on recruiting duty. I was 23. And uh, she has uh, hung in there with me. Uh, I've never been a geo bachelor. Uh, uh, so she's come everywhere. And, uh, yeah, she knows more about recruiting duty than most of the people in the room next to us uh, that houses Micric, uh, especially when it comes to uh, how you treat Marines, how you treat poolies, and, and how you put people in the Marine Corps and treat their families. Uh, she has definitely been uh, a confidant, uh, and most of the good ideas that I've brought to the table, and those are few and far between, uh, usually have her fingerprints on it. So. Right. Well, that's good. I'm glad that uh, you've survived to this point with your wife. Uh, but in our travels and some of our discussions, when we were talking about back to the basics, uh, a common theme that kept recurring in our conversations, and I'd like to unpack here, is you often say trust the process. Yes, sir. Right. When, when, when you say trust the process, what does that mean? Uh, you know, and I say this, you just brought up uh, 
very kindly that I've been on recruiting for 21 years. Um, not that that's a secret, but it's a shock sometimes even to me. Um, it's a big number. So I, <laughs> I, I say this understanding that not everybody's been on recruiting for 21 years, but uh, recruiting's not hard. It's, it's not. Uh, recruiting is hard work. It's, it's sales. I mean, if you look at any industry um, that even has a ton more money to do advertising stuff, it's still hard. I mean, it's, it, it is uh, a grind. And, but there's things that we can rely on. And, and number one, I always say, uh, when I was an RI, they, they got tired of me saying this, was uh, it's mathematically impossible to fail on recruiting duty. You might not like what the numbers are. You might not want to hear it. But uh, there are processes in place that tell you how to be successful. There's doctrine. Uh, number one, we, we have books written on how to do this job. And yeah, it might be different to recruit in Florida than it is to recruit in Kansas, but it's still the same. It's all, it's all based off our process and our doctors all based off of a calendar. I know that I have a mission this month. I know how much it is. I know I have a mission next month. I know how many I have to write and the month after that and the month after that. And oh, by the way, in December, we have another mission. It's, it's a, it is a process that all you have to do is inject the hard work and you're usually the right way because we're probably going to have a discussion about some of the wrong ways that you can put a lot of that hard work into. But you have to trust that process. So number one, to me, you've got to pick up that doctrine. Uh, and we've expanded our library. But the, and I'll debate, if you wanted to debate, the, the one and the three are, the, are what we need, right? Anything else will probably take care of itself, um, the five and the, and the PSR and stuff like that. But if we didn't have the volume one and the volume three, we wouldn't know what to do. And every three years we get new people that would just create uh, or do the same mistakes over and over again. So number one, and, and those weren't just someone just flashing the pan. Somebody wrote that. This, those were group efforts over 20, at least over the 20 years that I've been on recruiting duty. I've seen a few different versions come out. I've been to working groups where we get to uh, discuss and, and figure out like, Hey, this is the right way to do business. Um, so you have to trust that you have to trust that the doctrine is telling you what to do and what to do. Right. The sales method we use. Oh my God. We've, we've had two in the 20 years and that has changed. I was a PSS baby. Uh, my whole time as a staff, I see, I taught PSS to my recruiters and then I went in the ops world and, uh, had to play catch up real fast to MC three when I became an RI. Um, if you're tracking along with that timeline, um, but you have to trust that it works. You have to use benefit tags. You have to use the macabre. You have to use um, the selling skills that, that are taught. As a command group, you have to trust that process and, tr and train to that and speak to that. You can't dismiss it as not important, right? Because um, it is part of the process. And then, of course, systematic recruiting, which is really where the command groups come in as the police, as the, the accountability to that systematic process. And, and they have a huge lift in it, too to make sure that those warriors on the streets, those recruiters and staff and CICs are, are working at and trusting that all of those things are going to make you make mission. And when we stop trusting that, be it I think I'm smarter than the process or I am super stressed because what I'm doing right now isn't working, what I'm doing the process, as I understand it, it's not working, um, it doesn't take much to get someone off of it. It doesn't take some. It does not take much, in my experience, to get someone to stop doing what the volume one says to do, to stop having a proper sales call, 
Uh, it doesn't take much to do that, and we've got to get we've got to develop it, and we've got to continue to teach it so that that people trust it. And it took me a while. It it took me a long time to a trust it and really understand it. And I, I've I've told the story to a few people and stuff. I, as as I described earlier, I uh, I ran five different RSSs over a ten year period. Um, so the first three, I always say, um, I had lots of energy, but I didn't have a lot of knowledge. Uh, I was, um, I could work really hard. I could work really long. Um, I was, I mean, even married to stuff, I could, no one was going to outwork me. No one was going to be in there. I, I was pretty dynamic at the time. Uh, I still had hair. Um, but I would bend my recruiters. I would bend our station, um, I would bend the system to us, right? And, and you can fall and trip really easy on that. It got really hard in Fort Wayne, like I said, when when the Mickrick was about to miss mission, everything was everything was pressurized. But had a lot of energy. I moved to uh, North Carolina, and of course, what do you get when you move uh, to a new RS? You get the best station they have, right? Um, I, it was a pretty broken station. It was in a rough area, eastern North Carolina, very depressed area. A lot of us have spent time there. Um, and at this point, probably mostly because that one in six I ran, I had a bunch of knowledge. I really had learned a lot. I had no more energy. Um, so I didn't want to put the time in. I was unwilling to put the time into the training to properly, to the, the accountability and, and watching over the, the Marines as they were displaced. I was a four office, one in four. So that they were all over the place. Um, I knew what I was supposed to do, but I just didn't have that, that energy in me anymore. Um, and then I took that 15-month hiatus in MEPS, uh, took a knee. It was, I'll never say it was a hard job. I'll never say it was uh, uh, stressful at all. You, you service whatever shows up that day and, and move on at the end of the day. Uh, and then I got RSS Raleigh, a one in five, uh, young Marines and stuff like that. And by then, it clicked that I had the knowledge and the energy. Uh, so I had both and it was almost like magic. Uh, not that I wasn't successful earlier, but how easy it was to run that station. And it was, you know, it's the build up. We had big missions. There was a lot of, a lot of resources, a lot of things out there, but um, I, I had all the energy, all the knowledge, and I was now bending my recruiters and their personalities. And I had a, a myriad of personalities uh, to the system. And I could understand because I trusted it so much and I trusted the way that the business operated and I lived in it so long, I was bringing them to the system. I was bringing them to those sales techniques and making them better inside of those things. I was having them read the doctrine and, and live in that. And there was no wiggle room. There was no negotiation that that was the way we we're going to do it. Uh, and, and there's some benefits uh, to that, I was far removed from being a recruiter, right? Uh, unfortunately, nowadays, you don't see staff in SYCs that have had six, seven years in the seat. Uh, and uh, it took me a while, I guess, to separate from from the recruiter, Jared, to the staff, uh, a staff in SYC that, that really trusted how the process worked and could see 90 days ahead. I, I could, it was never about today. When, once you trust the process, and if you read all the doctrines, it's never about today. It's always about 90 days from now, 60 days from now, next month, 
next year? What are we doing to fill J Jazz right now? You know, it's and that's a big vision. And the challenge is going to be moving forward with back to the basics is our commanders, our, our officers and stuff, they, they change over. So we got to get them school up real quick. But our 12s and, and some of our longer in the tooth staff and CSEs are the ones that decide to stick around is how can we get them to that point faster? Because obviously I took too long. So it's, it's, it's interesting to think about. You know, it's extremely hard to replace experience with anything other than time. Right. It, it takes time to accumulate the knowledge that you describe. And anyone that would think that, you know, in that fourth station, you know, you, were, you just didn't have the energy to run it anymore. And, oh, well, you're a Marine. You need to suck it up. Has never run the three stations that it took to get you to that point. Right. The, the, the point here is that we can burn out. You, you can burn out. And I'm confident that that burnout was not only part of running three stations up to that four station, but it's because you weren't doing it smart, right? You had all exactly. that energy <laughs> exactly. and you were running a thousand miles an hour in a bunch of different directions where if someone had right centered you on systematic recruiting, it's possible that you would have, you know, achieved the success that you did in those first three stations without expending that energy that would have given you the ability to replicate that in the fourth, right? And so for our listeners, the command groups, the staff and trustees, the recruiters, they don't have the benefit of getting staff and trustees on their fifth station. Right. They're going to take a, someone that was a recruiter yesterday and make them a staff and trustee now, or somebody that may have even, depending on the personnel posture there, that just graduated BRC but has the rank or they're in that location. Hey, you're now the staff and trustee. How do we impart on the listeners don't take the long way to get to systematic recruiting. How do we get them to grasp that earlier so that they can benefit from it during their three-year tour? That's a great question. Um, it, it's trust the process. It, a, it starts with the 8412s. Uh, the day one that a new commander gets on deck or the new OPSO, the new XO, uh, new sergeant major gets on deck, there is no negotiation. This is the doctrine. This is the way that business is supposed to be done. It starts there, right? Um, unfortunately, that's not always the case. And I'll, I mean, there's going to be plenty of 8412s that listen to this. We don't always do it right. Sometimes we've spent a little too long somewhere, and, hey, this is the way we've always done it, creeps in. Uh, it's usually not deliberate, but it occurs. Um, but we've got to get those people I just mentioned on the track of trusting a process that is tried and true right off the jump as soon as they get there. And the more that we can do that, the more that if you're, if you're sitting in a C gap and you don't have volume one or volume three out, you're not, you're not literally, Hey, remember what it says? Hey, let's look that up real quick. Um, you're just going off of like, yeah, we used to do this and we used to do that. That's you're already, you're already missing the boat. Um, I'm not saying it's a, everyone needs to reread it every time, but it should always go back to that. Hey, this monthly mission plan, this monthly mission, is it doctrinal? Is it, is it the way that we're supposed to mission our RSS? Did we use our other tools from annual planning? Little things like that, and I know I'm kind of going all over the place, is all part of that process. It's all part of the, the reason we come to work and, and do things every day. And if all of those people that sit around the table at CGAP 
are talking about that and talking like that and staying in the process, using MC3 skills, using systematic recruiting, referring people to doctors, that's going to trickle down to the staff and CIs and recruiters. And that's where you get that staff and CIs on target faster. It, it, to me, it's, it's the, the easy answer is, is the command group. As soon as we got command groups going in different directions or saying they're not patient enough to see uh, uh, the ship turn and so they want to do some fancy glittery things, um, which my last two commanders hated me because I was not a fan of talking about stuff like that. Um, it, you, just, you just get off path quick, and it's so hard to get back on. Right. So I, I was recently talking to a recruiting instructor who just got put into place. He was on the national training team for some time. He's now a master gunny. He gets put in to be an RI. And as soon as he gets there, you know, he's filling out the recruiters and the staff and so I sees and the command group. And he's, and he's fielding calls from a lot of staff and so I sees. And they're asking him, hey, master gunny, how do I do this? Hey, master gunny, how do I do that? And I know when I came into the Marine Corps, in my MOS, when I would ask a question like that, my staff and COs were always like, what does the pub say? Go to the pub. Airwing stuff right there. Yeah. Go to the pub and then come back and tell me what you think the pub said so we can make sure you didn't misread that, misinterpret that, and, and that you actually read it. Well, this RI did the same thing, and it kind of goes with what you were saying. That's a good answer is to the command group. Well, his response to them is, what does the volume one say? Well, you, come on, Master Gunny, just tell me. Go look in the volume one. And it's true today. What was true for me is that while I'm looking for that answer right then, I'm going to find the answer to other questions that I don't even know I have yet. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Because you're not going to turn to that exact page and find that exact paragraph to answer that exact question. You're going to have to do some reading. Mm -hmm. And through that reading, you're going to find there's going to be some discovery there. And there's going to be some aha moments like, oh, I had not considered that. Oh, I had not thought about that. But because we have become such a explain or tell organization, we've kind of lost our way with the doctrine. And if we just do something as simple as that Master Guns is doing is, what does the volume say? Go check it out and come back and tell me what you found. Well, it's, the, the easy button is just telling you, right, it's, to your point. The easy button is just saying, like, okay, here, I'll show you. Don't worry about that. But it's not an investment. The, the, what you're describing and, and what uh, that RI is doing, it's an investment because sooner or later, they're not going to ask. They're going to read. And then if they don't understand, they're going to call. But, hey, I read this. This is the problem. I read this. What do you think? Am I on the right track? Uh, so what he's doing is he's making an investment on, on them and, and hopefully centering that staff. And so I see on that's the place to get the answer. And when I get the answer, if I implement it, I'll get the results I want because that's the second half of it, right? That's right. Uh, you, you know, you can read all you want to. If you can't implement it or you, you don't implement it, you're not going to get the result you want. You're not going to trust it. We're going to throw it away. It's going to sit there and gain dust on the, on the wall, on a shelf. The old antidote of give a man a fish, he'll eat today. Right. Teach a man to fish, he'll eat for a lifetime. Right. That kind of comes to mind. In some of my observation, I'd be interested to get your take on this, you know, for recruiting and I'm sure that this acronym is outside of recruiting, but I've only heard it on recruiting is the PESOS acronym. Prepare, explain, show, observe, supervise. supervise. Right. During good times, we got really good at preparing and explaining, preparing and explaining, preparing and explaining. I'd be interested to know if command groups would go out and actually show how to do this, then observe them do that, and then 
begin to supervise. Vice just prepare, explain, prepare, explain, prepare, explain. If that might accelerate this process. Oh, it absolutely will. I mean, I, I have a little more cynical view than um, that, that we got comfortable. I, I think prepare and explain is easy. Show, observe, and supervise is hard. So uh, now when you talk about, hey, I've got two months worth of depth and holds on my head. Uh, I've got some, uh, some calendar control. They'll figure it out. I got time. Um, that, that will make you make a, a comfort-based decision where like, I'm not going to go out there and observe and show us ass, a lot of work. Um, and and I, I think some command groups are foolish with that. I mean, it's leadership. Pesos is nothing but leadership. We might not have heard it anywhere else. Um, it's a fancy acronym, but that's all it is, is a training leadership uh, method. And I think it's all over the place. Uh, uh, you probably find in a lot of successful businesses that that's how, how they do it. It's just stated differently. I mean, if you're not willing to go out there uh, and be out with your Marines and, and fail in front of them, right? That's, that's another thing that people are afraid of. And, you know, if the shoe fits, wear it. But if you're afraid that if you think you're going to so good, every AC contact is going to turn an appointment, then why aren't you out there showing? Right. <laughs> but that's why, not why people are uh, avoiding those steps uh, in general. They're avoiding those steps because they might fail. And I'll tell you what, I've, I've failed a whole bunch. I've described on this, on this uh, podcast my failure uh, or, or potential failures that uh, you just got to be out there with them. These young Marines and the, the – the, the staff of and the recruiters, they love it. They'll, they'll love if you're out there with them. And then just do the right thing. You, you, you know, these 8412s and command groups, they, you do it the way that the process tells you to do it in front of them. If you fail, if that person, you know, gives you the middle finger and walks off, or if you get an appointment and the screening, he blows up or she blows up, so be it. That's what those recruiters and the staff and CSEs are living every day. They have to do it every day. They're not looking at anybody else that it's happening to with judgment. You know, and so if you feel like uh, they would judge me if I go out there and uh, show, I'd get over it. You need to get over it uh, because that, that's how we're going to that's how we'll win together. A hundred percent. Right. They need to see you try and fail. That that also proves that you have to trust the process. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to see you work through the skill steps and they're going to see that if that doesn't work, you're moving on to the next person. Right. Not every person that we engage is going to say yes. But conversely, not every person we engage is going to say no. That's right. Right? I'm just trying to get to the next person because that could be the yes. You know, we've been breaking down a little bit of back to the basics. And when I, when I hear back to the basics, what really pops out to me is what you're really describing is driving production, right? You know, let's get back into the doctrine. Let's get back into sales. Let's get back into training. To me, that's all the things that contribute to driving production. And when I think about driving production... I'm thinking generating tempo, creating urgency. And as a command group, it's my job. The way I generate urgency is to remove obstacles. Like what things do I have in the way that is preventing the pace that I want, right? And I recently heard a quote, and I thought it was, was great, and it's probably good for this podcast, is the pace of the sales team is based on the pace of the leader. So if you're at the head shed and, and, and you're just marking time or walking along or strolling along, that's going to be the pace of your sales team as a whole. You'll have a couple of RSSs that might be out there just running because they're top 10 percenters or they've got it all together. But by and large, if you're not creating the tempo, they're going to 
run whatever pace it is that you run. And so in facilitating the success of those below you and in talking about back to the basics and driving production, I think the best framework to articulate that and to work from is the enlisted recruiting process, right? It's an eight-step process. It's very simple. It is a human repeatable process that a minimally skilled user could fall in on and repeat over and over. And the eight steps for the benefit of the listeners that may not know what those are. uh, First step is obtaining names. So you have to go out and obtain some names. Once you've obtained those names, you prospect. Once you're prospecting and you make contact, you're going to screen. From screening, we move to selling. From selling, we move to processing. From processing, they are now in the pool. Then they ship. And then you move into CDR. Those are the eight steps. As a command group, work back to the basics and driving production. Ultimately, we're trying to maximize a recruiter's time. Right? Right. What steps do you think a recruiter belongs in inside the ERP? Like if I'm a recruiter and I'm out there hooking and jabbing, yes, there's eight steps, but which steps should I probably be more, most focused on? Well, that's, that's super easy. Uh, what we call blocking and tackling, uh, uh, lovingly, is the prospecting and selling. Of course, you have screening in the middle there, but if, if your recruiters aren't doing the prospecting and selling, there's nobody doing that. Interesting. So if I understand you correctly, there are eight steps and three of them are typically where recruiters should live. The, the better part of their time every day, day in, day out should be living there. And, um, looking at them, anything else that they're doing should be in conjunction with prospecting and selling. Everything else on that list that you just described from obtaining names, if, if I'm going in to go get a list from somewhere, I better come out with a can AC as well, or an Air Canvas kid, because I'm going to the high school. Right. Um, if I'm with my poolies, developing my poolies, then I'm waiting for referrals. I'm getting referrals from them, or I'm taking them AC in with me, or, or something like that. Um, so the recruiters have to be focused on that all, all day. And I, like I said, we've, we've had that discussion before. If, if they're not doing it, who is? Right. Every, everything else, somebody else could be doing. Uh, but there's one person that's built to prospect and sell, and that's an 8411 campus and recruiting and recruiter, and they're the best at it. Right. They don't like doing it. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> you know, and recruiters, if you're listening, and I'm sure some of you are, you're not going to like this part of the podcast. But I'm telling you, <laughs> if you focus on the things that we're talking about, it's going to improve your quality of life. It's going to improve everything for you, Right. If you focus on prospecting and selling, which is ultimately the thing you're trying to get away from, like it never fails me. When I was a staff into I see there's always the recruiters like, oh, he needs to go to the MEPS. I'll drive him, boss. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no. You go back and prospect or you're going to do this interview. Oh, I got the pool function today, boss. I'll go pick them up. I'll drop them off. No, no. You're going to go back to prospecting and selling and I'm going to go pick up the poolies and I'm going to run the the pool function, or I'm going to drop off the shippers, or I'm going to work on the CDR program. I'm going to help you obtain names. Ultimately, the more prospecting and selling you do as a recruiter, and the more you protect that time, the better your quality of life is going to become. As a matter of fact, recruiters, if you're listening, you need to find that anytime you're doing something not related to prospecting and selling, you need to ask your staff and so I see, hey, why am I doing these things? Because it's preventing me from prospecting and selling. Because ultimately, the more prospecting and selling you get done within the 
the work time, the more time you get to go home and do things that you enjoy that is not prospecting and selling. You got anything on that, Massacre? Also, words to live by. Uh, no, that's exactly right. And, uh, and what you're describing with the staff as I see is, is removing those obstacles so that your recruiters can prospect and sell often and always. Uh, and that's, that's how they have to look at their job is removing those obstacles. I always uh, said uh, as a staff and so I see, I'm always happy. I'm just never satisfied. And it goes all the way back to, to what I said about recruiting and why it's easy. It's because I know I have a mission three months from now. I love what you're doing for me today. I'm happy with that. That's good stuff, but I'm not satisfied. I want more. And in order for me to get more from you, I've got to make your life conducive to doing more. Right. Right. Um, and that's not always, you know, the recruiters, they need to be part of those things that we're describing. It's not, it's not lock you in a closet and make telephone calls. It's not drop you off at Walmart and not come back for hours and hours to get uh, area canvassing. Um, it's learning and teaching recruiters how to do both. Like I said, there's some, there's examples that I could pull from any of those steps that I'm prospecting while I'm developing a pulley, while I'm with a CDR, while I'm uh, shipping. There's, there's, there's always time for both. To me, what you described is there's times when they, they don't want to do any prospecting. And, and that's, that is absolutely human nature. It's human nature. Uh, you mean I, I can go hang out with my poolies that never say no to me because I'm in charge, or I get on the phone and have a bunch of parents say uh, no and hang up on me and reject me. It's totally human nature, and that's why I, I love 8411s for the things that they do. That's a tough job. They have an extremely tough and challenging job. But the more of it they do, the more numb they come to the rejection Right. They just they just blow past it and move on. Hey, you got a referral. You got somebody else I should be talking to. If not your kid, who? Right. They they move on. But the more sets and reps that they get in prospecting and selling, the better they're going to become also. Right. So not only are they going to be able to just move past the the negativity, but they're going to move quickly to the positivity. They're going to find the next yes quicker through sets and reps. They're going to become more effective at sales and all of the things that they do will become exponentially easier. Right. And that effectiveness is where you get your time back. Absolutely. That's where you get your time back. And, and yes, uh, the Super Bowl team didn't just show up on the field. They practiced. There's lots of sets and reps that got them to that point, but they got really, really good at it. And that's what, that's what you're, you're describing is that's the way to gain confidence and gain time back. Right on. You know, another thing while we're on prospecting and selling, I see this when I go out, and I'd be interested to get your, your take on this, is before we start prospecting, before you do any of this, you know, we know that the calendar month, let's just say there's going to be 30 days. We're going to sit down in advance of that month. We're going to evaluate the mission as a staff into IC and as a team, and we're going to develop a plan. And if we're planning smartly, back to the basics, right, I'm planning to conduct different activities. There are five prospecting activities. OT you don't really plan for, so there's really four that we would plan for. I'm going to position those activities throughout my day and week at the best time to make contact, right? I'm not going to just make phone calls to make phone calls. I'm going to plan my call blocking time for the time that I'm going to make contact. Now, doctrinally, we're going to call a morning, afternoon, evening, and weekend. But ultimately, I'm going to plan within that morning, within that afternoon, and within that evening and weekend for the most optimized time to get contact. 
And I find that recruiters are okay at planning that part. So we'll be in a call block time, and let's say it's, you know, 1,800 in the you know evening time. That's the best time that they've analyzed that list for contacts. And they'll make a phone call, and a voicemail will pop up, and they don't leave a voicemail, which TTP number one, always leave a voicemail. Absolutely. You will never get a call back if you don't leave a voicemail. Now, most people have caller ID now, and they may hit return call on U.S. government or a, a foreign number, but a lot of them will not leave a voicemail. This does a couple of things. One, it allows them to understand why you were calling and they may actually be interested and want to talk to you. Two, it allows you to practice your engagement statement over and over and over and over again. Sets and reps. So we're learning how to engage, right? But immediately after they hang up, having not left a voicemail, they'll pick up their cell phone and they'll go straight to Facebook or Instagram and they'll start searching for that name. And you know, they deliberately plan to make phone calls at that time, but now we've transitioned to a different activity, i.e. DC, trying to see if they're on Facebook, right? You pick that time to make phone calls. Why are you fiddling around with your phone? Make your phone calls and then come back to doing that social media research there or do it on the front end of your prospecting call block so that during that time, you're actually just executing the activity that you need to do. By doing that, you will increase your contacts, and from contacts come appointments, appointments to interviews. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I, I think you're you're spot on. I it, it's a pet peeve of mine to see what you just described go on because it's highly inefficient. Um, you're not in a, a groove uh, like you would be a, a, during a TC period or a DC period where you're very focused on the activity and you can do it the best that you can. Uh, I would say that's a great method if you've used up all your names and now you got your 10 pack cards for the day or whatever. And your, or your boss says, I want you to scrub these 10 names, which you don't hear that terminology used very much anymore. I'm scrub was something that was said every hour on the hour when I was a recruiter, how many names have you scrubbed and whatnot? And that'd be fine. I'm like, hey, I got to scrub these. I got to find these 10 names. Okay, cool. Um, but when you're trying to generate business and you're trying to work through lists, uh, it's very important to stay in that time zone because Think back to, to what you what you taught or where this came from, that planning, right? You sat down likely for a full day, if not a day and a half, and decided that 14 days later you were going to call this list at 3 o'clock in the afternoon because I'm hoping there was some mental rigor behind that because the last time you called at 1,500, you got a, a contact every five telephone calls. So don't forget the the – the planning that went into it, that's what it's designed for. That's what I said. This is not a hard concept. This process is we're going to shut you down and do monthly planning. We've already done annual planning. You're going to decide because all I want you to think about at this moment is when are the best times to do this. And then when that time comes and that day comes, just do what you plan to do. Because now you don't have to think about it. Now I just need you to execute. I gave you the time to think about it. And that's where you see the, 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 the recruiters can get off of, um, they, they can be their own worst enemies because now I'm doing something different. Like, well, why didn't you, you didn't write that you're going to do both activities at the same time two weeks ago. Uh, but that brings right back to if they don't trust what they're doing, they're just filling in a month in sight and, and it's not a good plan because they're not doing that. And that's what you have to identify as a staff as I see is, is that really the problem? Like they don't believe in the planning they did uh, so that they can just execute at this point in time. Uh, 
And, and that's kind of where I always went with it is if I'm going to give you that day off of prospecting and selling to produce me a great plan that's going to get you the results you need for this, then I don't need you thinking about it two weeks later. I need you doing it. You, you don't get to think about it anymore. That's right. <laughs> you get to do. Um, and at the end of that month, we're going to give you another day of not prospecting to plan the next month. And it becomes a cycle and it becomes a habit. Um, and you make your adjustments through analysis. Right. You know, that you, you describe that when a recruiter is getting off task, the staff and see is there to direct the effort. It, it, it's their job to know exactly what they're supposed to be doing at that specific time and ensuring that they do that. Because you sat down and gave up a full day or a half a day to develop this plan, why are you allowing them to deviate? Right. And if I'm a command group member and I'm coming in, the first thing I want to see when I see a is show me your schedule for today. Show me your SNR. Show me what you had planned. Why are you in the office right now? Did you plan to be in the office? Did an appointment no show? Are you in between something? Like, what's going on? Why are you here? Like, what are you doing? And I want to look at that. And then I'm going to talk to the staff. And so I see about, hey, why are they not following their plan? Or, hey, what was the thought behind having them here? And see if they can talk about that. It's not to micromanage the staff. And so I see it's to understand their thought behind why that happened, right? It's just to allow me to supervise in the PESO process. And if I see that there's a problem, now I can go back to prepare, explain, and show, and then work back towards observe and supervise. Now, you brought up another interesting thing, which scrub the list. <laughs> yes. Right? And I want to articulate for the listeners, because I think it's maybe a practice that's been lost. The purpose of phone calls is not to put a tick mark so that you can accumulate a number to an objective. Prospecting in general is not that. Yes. <laughs> The aim is to make contact with someone. It's to screen them out and either scrub them off the list for DQ or whatever reason or to get them on a pack card so that I can get them into my working file. Systematically. So I can systematically distribute my workload and follow up with them. And so I want to park on this for just a little bit and describe a TTP that I used to do that I thought was good Mm -hmm. as a recruiter and a staffing trustee. Now, this was just the culture back then, right? I was not going to do any activity just to get a tick mark. And so when I, before I got my list given to me by my staff, and so I see during monthly planning, I marked off, these are the 10 names that I want to call today. And the aim was not to make 30 phone calls, i.e. morning, afternoon, and evening. You will make contact with them. Right. You figure it out. You're either going to call them three times and go to their house. You're going to call them three times and go to the school and find them. You're going to go to their job. You're going to employ a poolie to ask them where might this person be. The whole purpose of list prospecting is to scrub them off the list. And once I get them DQ'd for whatever reason or on a pack card and in my working file, I no longer have to schedule that list again. Like, I think that maybe that is a lost art. So recruiters, if you're listening, Plot your names and go after them aggressively every day to scrub them from the list. Like, I will make contact with these 10 people today. This is a contact-driven business. I don't care what your TC objective is or whatever prospecting activity objective is. If you contact 10 people, 10 people every day, I'm confident that you will be successful. Oh, that's a fact. That's a fact. I mean, that's, um, again, people don't believe that. They don't trust that, that I can talk to 10 people. Uh, but it comes with a lot of caveats. Uh, there's planning involved to that TTP. Yep. Because uh, you have to, you can't call them. And then if 
their job isn't anywhere near where you're supposed to be that day. You're going you're gonna to waste time. And then when you do get those 10 contacts, you've got to use the selling skills you've been taught. You've got to give a, an honest effort, those sets and reps, right? Yeah. Um, and, and then you've got to screen vigorously. Right. Um, one thing I noticed, and I think this is one of the, the things that have gotten us away from the basics is, as we have gotten more comfortable uh, throughout the teen years where the missions were coming a little bit better uh, and we had, we're starting to gain depth and hold momentum is uh, what I call sifting versus selling as a recruiter, right? Uh, and sifting, for those who don't know, think a gold digger in the, uh, in the river. What do they call that? Prospecting. And he's got a, a box with a screen on the bottom, dips in the water, gets some of the sediment in the bottom, and he sifts. He's sifting out to try to find that gem in uh, that piece of gold in this bucket full of mud. Um, and if he doesn't, he just dumps it and goes again. Um, that's sifting when you're looking for that appointment or that, that, guy who are, or that guy or gal who's interested. You're not willing to handle disinterest you're not willing to handle and use your MC3 skills. Like, hey, are you interested? No, click. I'm going to call the next one. That's sifting. I'm looking for that gold nugget that supposedly is, is going to exist. And for some recruiters out there, they don't have enough bodies in their AO to do that. To be a sifter. Right. You need to be a seller. Every person that you get on the phone, you're trying to sell them to be the gold piece. You're trying to propense them to come see you. That is the skills that we teach them. Um, but again, that's harder, right? Right. That's harder to do than to just say, Oh, you're not interested. Cool. Because if I go three days of doing that sooner or later, someone's like, yeah, I've been waiting for you to call. Oh, and they're disqualified, right. Or they fail the East or something like that. You could have had so much more if you would sell versus sift. Um, so when, when you see that as a command group staff, so I see is that you, that sifting is not good. It's good in, in, in pan prospecting for gold. But again, there's many a man that stood in the river and never found that piece of gold. There's plenty of good sized rocks. <laughs> right. If, if you're in a market that is target rich and which allows you to be a sifter vice a seller, we need to divvy up your sector to more recruiters. That's exactly right. Right. Yes. If, if, if you're in a position to where you can be a sifter and not a seller, we need to look at your sector. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's solid gold. No pun intended uh, <laughs> with, with what you're saying. We have to, and it goes back to the basics that you were talking about in sales. We have to be proficient at sales. We have to do role plays. We have to understand how to handle disinterest. And every kid that says they're not interested does not necessarily mean that they're really not interested. They don't see the need to change. They don't understand what the Marine Corps necessarily has for them. We have to raise their awareness. We have to generate propensity. I'm confident that there's something in life that they want to do, and until we discover what that is, we don't know whether the Marine Corps can help them solve that problem or not. Right. And the only way to do that is to engage them, have the conversation, and use our MC3 skills. And I, for one, would rather hook and jab with him and his mom trying to convince them to do an appointment, then make six more phone calls where I just heard it ring and no answer. A hundred percent. Let me, let me go at it. And then the last thing, the other skill loss that I've seen. So we're prospecting the names. I make contact and I pack them out. They're not interested. I can't overcome the disinterest. Not a problem. I'm going to follow up with you in 90 days and see if your circumstances are changed. Right. Don't forget to ask for a referral. 
<laughs> everybody I talked to when I was at the RSS level before we ended that conversation was, hey, you know anybody else I should be talking to, right? That's like going into a store and forgetting to ask for the military discount. Like, if you swipe your card without asking for a military discount, you're cheating yourself out 10% every time. What a great example. <laughs> that really is. That's, that's an awesome example. I was wondering where you're going with that. Um, no, a- absolutely. It's, it's sales. Read any book outside of the doctrine that we have about sales, and that's, that's exactly what the successful salesman will tell you. And you never know. And that's, that could be a wrong number. Right. I've, I've gotten a wrong number. I was like, well, is there anybody there that might be interested? A hundred percent. Every time. So, hey, this is fate. Right. Yeah. You got I, nephew, niece, son. Yes. Who cuts your grass? How old is the kid to cut your grass? Mm-hmm. Maybe he's ready. Now, that's good. You know, you always have to ask for a referral, and you always need to be prospecting, and don't be a sifter, be a seller. I love that uh, analogy there. So the other day in talking to you know, the G3, we're doing a brainstorming session about back to the basics. He said, ultimately, as an RS or even as a staff NCIC, you should not be caught off guard by the next 90 days. Like, right. don't, don't let the next 90 days be a surprise to you, right? You need to know how to use the tools that are inside the system that help you forecast the future, right? Look into the system, and it will tell you what the next 90 days is likely going to bring. And and it brings me to the next point of back to the basics, right? System-generated reports. What what reports are available for a command group or a staff NCIC or a recruiter to help drive production? Well, there's a bunch of them. And I'll say right up front, they're the only ones you need. Uh, If there's opsos and stuff listening to this that are spending their nights generating Excel spreadsheets that do all sorts of whiz-bang stuff, um, probably all the things that you need is already in McCris, uh, and and it's coming out in McCris too as well. One of my favorites, um, the guided. Uh, can, can I park on that real quick? Yes, sir. And, and this is for higher headquarters to listen to to this part, right? <laughs> I am confident that the majority of opsos that are generating outside the system reports are doing so because higher headquarters is asking a question yes. that the system doesn't generate. And so now we've got 48 opsos creating reports that are outside the system and they're having to maintain and sustain this. And then, oh, by the way, I want to know about this. So then they add a new report and then I want to know about that. Headquarters, stop asking for stuff that those native reports don't provide. Allow the opsos to use the native reports. And if there's a report out there that you need so bad that we have to create it outside the system, work with the McCris cell and see if we can't get the current report modified to give you what you need or at least make sure that there is an engineer change proposal for the next system that's archived so that when that system rolls out, we can have you that new report. Because I see it on my ACS travels when I worked at the district. Opsos are doing wildly interesting things. And when you ask them, hey, why are you generating that report? Well, my district headquarters wants me to do this. Why are you doing that report? Well, they also want that one. And why are you doing that? Well, they want that too. What are they doing with that information? I have no idea. Like it. Right. Like, what are we doing? All right, back, back no, to you. No, absolutely, yeah. And, and that's for the RS command group, district command groups, region. Anytime you're asking for something, you should provide feedback. Or it is worthless. Because the, the information you need, to your point, is in the system. If you want to see it so bad, just pull it um, and leave the people that are doing the work uh, 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 alone. Because when it comes to reporting, and, and I've, say this, I've said, said this in RS Ops Chief, I've, I've said this, everybody in ops um, or at that level or higher 
it does nothing but count work. We do right. nothing but count work. We do not do the work. The work is done in those three cells that prospect and selling and with the screening in the middle that, that our 8411s are doing. Uh, it might feel like work, but we're counting work. And, and the, the reason I say it that way and it's important that way is because that's all we have to do, uh, we need to do it perfectly. And we need to provide feedback. We need to, we're sitting in the cheap seats. We're sitting in the cheap seats. So when you see some of these reports, um, a couple of my favorites are the weekly monthly report uh, that, that shows your, your prospecting activities uh, and your uh, processing efficiency um, by recruiter. So depending on where you're sitting and what, what you want to see, and then the activity analysis. And we did, I don't know how many years ago, it might have been while you were on the McCris team, where you could then take your activity analysis and get monthly data in month. It used to be you had to wait till the day after the month uh, rotated and you'd pull that. And that was always something me as an RI carried in and as an ops chief carried into CGAPs. Like I had one of everybody's. Um, and what that's, what it does is it, it's your report card, either one of those, the uh, weekly monthly reports. I like, you're able to drill down to the recruiter. Like an RSS might be struggling, but it's really one recruiter that's just sinking the whole team because of whatever reason. And you can start seeing that. Whereas the activity analysis is your entire RSS, RS or RSS, and it's not broken into individuals. But you can start easily identifying trends if it's a, a document, because if you're afraid of it, it's either one of them is an eye chart. There's lots of information on there. Um, but if you chunk it up, and I think we cover it in RMC at any of the classes up, up at the NCC that, that have to do with ops, is um, you break it down in pieces and review it, it will start to identify trends and inefficiencies. Uh, it'll, it'll start to identify trends where that you need to go to, to uh, train to potentially. And it's going to build your C gap in a lot of ways, more so than that. Uh, the PowerPoint that, that someone put, that you could take three days to put together for the C gap. And in general, I'm not dogging that we, we had that one wherever I was. Um, but if you understand numbers and, and, and you understand that, how to read those reports, they will tell you they're, they're crystal balls. You can see all sorts of things in there that are going to lead you in, in certain directions. Um, and we owe it to those people doing the work to put the vigor into that, put the, I'm sorry, the rigor into it uh, and really dissect it and then provide that feedback in, in the, in the form of a phone call, in the form of a CGAP visit in the form of, Hey, everybody's doing it wrong. We better do some training at all hands. Um, and, and that's what it does. It shows you the next actions to take as a command group. But it's, it's definitely my approach always to that is I'm counting other people's work and I'm sitting in the cheap seats. Because I'm sitting in the cheap seats, I can see the whole field. Right. I, I, I can see everything going on. I'm not playing the game, uh, and I owe it to them. Like This is my part. This is my part to help them play that game better. Uh, and command groups really need to embrace that. And I, I'm, a lot of them do. And they provide that feedback. But yeah, if you can go in an RSS, you're like, well, what, what did they tell you about your weekly report? I didn't see it again. I just I, I uploaded it. One of the worst things, uh, pet peeve of mine, is to go off, is the share portal. And uh, it used to be you had to fax it all in. Right. And I'm really dating our, us right now. Oh, yeah. But the OPSO or the OPS clerk had to go over and pull it off. And they had to hand it to somebody else. And you had to three-hole punch it and stuff. And um we started getting real fancy with these share portals where the staff in SYC just uploads it into a share portal. Boy, that'll pass an inspection every time, right? Every month is in there. Right. Nobody looked at it. 
because that means I had to go in there, I had to pull it out, I had to do things to it. Um, but I digress. That's that's the old dinosaur in me that hands-on made me do things. Right. You know, as an opso, there are some absolute critical things. You know, there's a lot of things you have to do as an opso, right? but there's only a handful that are critical to your job. And one of the most critical things you can do as an opso is analyze weekly numbers. It is one of the most important things that you can do as an opso. And it's not so much what you do with the numbers, it's how you share that information, right? And you bring up an interesting point. The good news in the story that you described, the staff in, so I see, uploads it to the share portal. At least that's keeping in line with the concept of this is a push product, not a pull product, right? So when you're talking about push and pull logistics, for those that do not understand that, there are certain times where a headquarters will will push you things that you need on schedule. We just know that you need water every three days, so you don't even have to request it. Every three days you're going to get new water, right? But then there's the pool where you, you exhausted your your water too quickly or what have you, so you're going to pull from headquarters like, hey, I need this, right? So now flip it where opsos are just pulling weekly numbers out of McCris just because they can. Opsos, if you're doing that, stop. All right, that is a push product, meaning the staff in so I see should pull it. Right. They should analyze it with notes, confirm that the numbers are accurate, and then give you that copy. Right. Don't go into McCris and just pull your own data. Make the staff in so I see push it because when you pull it, you're skipping that other step of analysis by the staff in so I see. From that, in, in my case, we had 15 RSSs. That's a lot. Yes. <laughs> By, by X time on Friday, the, the weekly numbers had to be on my desk. And then I would take them, and they would be in alphabetical order, A through Z. But I would not analyze them A through Z. And the reason I would not analyze them A through Z is because the top A through Z may not be my priority. Right. But if I'm the most fresh at that time and I exhaust my energy and concentration on them, by the time I get to those that really need it, I'm tired. So I would shuffle my weekly stack into the priorities that the CEO had placed on the CGAP the month before. So my number one RSS, or the number one priority for the CEO was the number one RSS that I was analyzing on my weekly numbers for that month, right? So that they got all my concentration and all my energy up front. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes Makes perfect sense, and I'm glad you made that connection for the opsos out there listening. That yeah, the priorities were established by the CGAP, but the commanders there. He's it's it's yeah. his or her priorities, but just like that recruiter that spent a day planning that and, and thinking through their month, that CGAP for the command group for That's the right. for the for that level that is that is that time to think. And now you're you, you made the great point of I didn't have to think about what my priority was. No. It was established for me. There's a process to that. That's correct. Right. And so I would write those comments down. And you know, the beautiful thing about weekly numbers is it if you're pulling the right report, it's going to give you by recruiter activities. And if you're just looking at the RSS aggregate, you're going to miss some blind spots. Absolutely. You're going to see some deficiencies in the middle, and you need to be able to expose that to the staff. And so I see, because a lot of them are not trained or prepared. They're just looking at, hey, I'm 
of my interview objective, but you've got two recruiters that are hitting it out of the park and exceeding their objectives and two that are not hitting it and you're masking a deficiency. And at the command group level, you need to be able to point that out to the staff. And so I see, hey, that's great that you hit 100% of your interview objective as a whole, but you need to focus on these two recruiters because they're not getting it done. You know, what gap analysis are you doing? So then I'm, I'm analyzing these numbers, and I'm also looking ahead. I know what the contract placement's going to look like for the next month. I can see that on my pool development spread and ask them specific questions. Hey, you've hit 100% of your interview objectives. How many were geared towards this female hole you have 60 days from now? How many were geared towards this reservist you have 90 days from now? And if you're not asking those questions, again, the staffers I see in recruit, they're just trying to make mission. Right. You have to remind them of some of these critical areas so that you can expose that and they can shore up those gaps, right? So I'm analyzing the numbers. I'm writing my comments. And then I'm, I'm scanning that, all 15 of them, in one PDF. And I'm going to send that back to all the staff and chassis. Some would say, oh, you know, that's kind of jacked up because now, you know, this station is seeing what you wrote about this station. Hey, that's fine. We're all going to learn together. You're going to be able to see what I, what comments I provided on that RSS, and you're going to learn from that. And others are going to see what comments were provided for you, right? They were not demeaning. They were not demoralizing. They were not degrading. They were thought-provoking questions that were commensurate with what, you know, they were professional, right? But that went to the staff and trustees and the whole command group. And the command group was trained to look through them as well. So when the sergeant major was going to RSS, you name it, next week, he would review those weekly numbers, especially if there was a recruiter that I highlighted. Hey, didn't recruiter X roll a zero last month and now they're on two? In- like, let's talk about this. What are, what's going on here? Right. And so you have to train the command group on that basic report. Oh, yeah. What are you doing with this report? And it just saddens my heart when OPSOs are just doing it for a, a check on an SRI. If they're not doing it to the degree in which I just described, they're not using that report for what it's designed, and they're not going to get the expected result. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. And I, I agree with you on the uh, mass email back out. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, peer pressure goes a long way, A. Embarrassment goes even further. If you're embarrassed by what, what, uh, what your numbers look like, uh, do better. That's all I can tell you. And – it's, you're obligated to, we're professionals. Why would it be nothing but professional? And right. if, if you see somebody going off of that and like a big WTF and Sharpie with right. a question mark, you've just devalued that report and your feedback, Depending, regardless of who it is in the command group that did it. You know, I've seen the big WTF and, and shoot back and make sure everyone sees it. And well, you're just, you're, you're shooting your own foot. Right. Uh, it's unprofessional. And it, well, there's no value added. Right. There's, there's zero value added uh, to a WTF comment, right? Okay, so that's the weeklies. And then the activity analysis is another good tool. And there are a lot of other reports. And it you go into command groups and you see them feverishly working away on these PowerPoints. And what they're really doing or what the OPSO is ultimately doing is taking those various reports and aggregating them into this easy-to-read PowerPoint. Right. And ultimately, the only people that like the PowerPoint output are the people that don't have to build it. That, that, that's common among PowerPoints in general. <laughs> right. So rather than build this aggregate, spend hours on this aggregated re- report that consolidates everything, how about we learn to use the native reports? Oh, absolutely. Because 
when you show up to an RSS and you pull out the pool report or the CDR report or the PPC report or the activity analysis, and you're going through that with the staff. And so I see that's the product that they have access to, that they've been trained on, that they understand that you can work through these problems. But when you show up with this printed out PowerPoint, like, Hey, uh, your PPC was this, and then you don't know how to read the report and translate that to them. That's a problem. Absolutely. And they have no access to further PowerPoints unless you show up with it. Right. CGAP, some, some places have it go out. Some places don't. Right. Um, and activity analysis is probably one of my f- favorite reports. I think it's uh, extremely valuable information. Uh, TTP that we did uh, at the command group level is, uh, I, I truly believe there's a, there's a, there's a portion on the bottom that says CO comments and that should be done. Uh, I think it's requirement, but uh, we would have it go through ops, get some notes, come to the RI, get some notes before it went to the CO. So the CO can see all of those notes and what we're highlighting, circling, uh, doing whatever to, to say, hey, this, this is an issue we need to look at. This is an issue we need to talk about at CGAP. And then, of course, the CO would put uh, her comments on there. We'd send those back. And quite literally, that's what, that is the only thing I walked into a CGAP with. Um, right. I didn't have my computer open uh, at CGAP. I had that. I had my ARIs next to me with my trip reports to see what happened last month, and I was ready to go, and I could talk about an RS, uh, RSS with that. Right. It, it, there, there's more to be gained, or, or there can be more to be gained if you dig deeper when you're talking about pool program, CD, you know, the programs. Uh, some of the information is an inch deep, but that should only be when needed. Right. right? If, 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 if my dashboard's looking good, I'm not going to pull over and pick and lift the hood. Right. right. If all my, if all my, if all my gauges are running good, like, all right, good. It's okay to be good. Right. Uh, and not, not be able to pick apart something. Um, because there's plenty of things wrong in an RS by the RSSs. When you start looking at activity analysis, that if you can find somewhere you don't have to go work on something, embrace it. Right. Because there's plenty of places that you, you can spend your time. Now that's a great analogy. If the, if the gauges and indicators in your dash aren't flashing, why are you looking under the hood? What are you doing? Uh, no, that's that's a great analogy. And, you know, to go back to the PowerPoint, th- there's some value in building the PowerPoint. And at least the way I sold myself as an opso, the more numbers that I'm plugging in, it forces me to see the number, right? And as I'm typing them in, I can analyze them. And, and so I'm not trying to beat up those that, that live by those PowerPoints. But just imagine if you trained yourself on the reports that are available, and use them, how much time you could buy back from instead of building PowerPoints, you're actually analyzing and solving your problems. Right. Because right? you're only going to get so many hours in a day. You're driving production. Yes. You're back to the basics. <laughs> right. Back to the basics. All right. Any other reports that that you think that would help a, a staff and see or a command group, you know, get back to the basics, drive production, and focus on the main thing? So we talked about weekly numbers. We talked about the activity analysis. I have one that comes to mind. Go ahead. If, if you're still thinking through, is the interview log, right? Yes, the interview log ultimately informs the activity analysis. And where I'm going with this is when I would go out on visits with General Beerman and General Journey, we would go into RSSs and they would start off the conversation typically with the staff and so I see of how is prospecting going. And the staff and so I see would immediately turn to this board where he had written a bunch of names and said, well, we've depth these four kids. You know, we got one more to make mission. I got these kids working for next month. And then 
they would let that go on for a bit, and then they'd finally, okay, that, that's interesting, and we're going to come to that. That's all processing, right? My question was around prospecting. Right. How are we doing on prospecting? And then they'd tap dance around, and finally they'd say, dude, open up, McChris. Open up your weekly report. Let's look at how you are with relation to objective attainment. And then that would neck down to interviews, and then ultimately we would open the interview log. And it never failed that, that there would be an accumulation of names on the interview log and that recruiter you pick would be 100 for 100 on objective attainment. But then as soon as you ask two to three questions, you quickly reveal that, yeah, that name don't belong in the interview log. They're disqualified. Yeah, that name don't belong. They're disqualified. Where's the height and weight? Ah, oh, I forgot to add that. Or how much do they weigh? Well, they're, so they're actually 30 pounds outside of contract and weight? Yep. Okay, that guy don't belong in the interview log. And you quickly realize that we might not be doing the level of work that we thought, which is why he would ask that question. And so I'm, you know, what are your thoughts on command groups when they're going out, not just the RI, not just the ARI, not just in the course of an evaluation summary of working with Marines, like the CO, the XO, the SAR major, knowing how to dig into that interview log and pick these things apart to help the OPSO. Oh, and it's super important. The, the interview log is the result, right? This is when we're starting to get into results at this point. And results are things that I can work with. I can do something with a result. I can't do anything with just a tick mark, um, however uh, important those are as well. But I, and it was, it was never uncommon, uh, when I would go any of my years in RSS and people would come to me as a staff. And so I see, and they, Oh, that looks like a disqualified kid. Yeah, you're probably right. That one slipped in there. Uh, and there's plenty in there, but I would, I would take it a step further and why it's important for these command group members to interact with the staff. And so I see on, on the, uh, interview log, two reasons. One, you want them to be. You want them to get in the habit of being able to discuss every interview in that interview log. For the last ninety days, the more conversations you're having about it, uh, the the more that they're going to be engaged and they're going to be prepared for your visits. They're going to know. They're just going to have an essay at all, at all times. The second part of that, and yes, you will identify some kids that aren't supposed to be on there. You're going to identify some ways that you might be able to help that. Staff and so I see. It was not uncommon. Like one of the first things, let's see, let's see your interview logs. Yeah, I can't get PC. We can't get in front of mom. Well, let's call her right now. Me and you, not the recruiter. Let's call her right now and see if we can get in front of her. And or hey, we haven't been able to get the med docs. Well, why not? And you start digging in and well, let's go get them right now. And you start building uh, methods or action plans. Sorry, that wasn't coming to me. You start helping enhance the action plans. Yeah, you're gonna get those couple like yeah, disqualify those kids, but it's the ones that are in there that are good that the staff and so I see just can't see what the action plan is anymore. He's he or she's inundated. There's 90 days worth of data. They they keep going over it. And when I say discussions as a commander, if the guy's like, hey, that that dude's action date's 30 days out, that should be it for the most part. You know, that's don't don't have a long diatribe on every one of those interviews. But you're trying to find the kid in there that we can move the ball forward today. How do we get them closer to the sale today? Right. Um, and again, when, when even as a staff, I say I can I can remember you you look at names over and over again, 
And I literally, this is, I literally had a little cheat sheet next to me uh, of ones that I had to really pay attention to, but I've always had, uh, I had them in there and had the interview log open going over with them. So you, then the ops was going over the last however many days or, or whatever action dates on them. But that command group coming in and just saying like, Hey, did you think about maybe, Hey, did you call the staff? So I see three RSS is over to get that BV. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Let's do that. And, and you're, you're now ro- rolling up your sleeves and you're involved with that staff. So I see trying to help. Um, so I, I completely agree that there are some, some disqualified ones in there, but don't go in there with that negativity. Every once in a while you need to do like, Hey man, your sales ratio is way out of the box, way out of the box. Uh, we need to find out what's going on and you're, and really you're going in there to look to see like what's not supposed to be in there. Uh, Cause five to one has been five to one for 21 years. Right. Uh, and what I mean by that is from peacetime, a war, a buildup, you know, the teen years to now, uh, if you got five interviews, I can find you a contract in those five interviews. Right? If you gave me an honest effort, I'll find you the contract in there as, as an 8412. Um, so uh, we, we want to go with both lenses. Let's, right. let's find the ones we can help with. Let's disregard the ones we don't need anymore. Right. Yeah, the, the, the first thing I described is I'm trying to validate the numbers. That's the opso in me, right? Uh, and I definitely appreciate you coming in with the, yeah, you know, you're going to get some of those, right? But ultimately, there I'm there to help the staff and so I see improve the contact contract chain. Right. What can I do to facilitate their success with the work that they've already done? How do I optimize people in this interview log to get through the enlistment process? Not everybody's going to join, but you're right. One in five are. Let's figure out who they are, right? And when we exhaust all of that and we run out of contracts, well, then we need to add five more names, right? Right. And that's, and that's like when we talk drive production, that's an aspect of driving production for every five or, you know, if you can, if you, you want to be a stickler and say, Hey, on the activity analysis, you're 4.2, whatever. I don't care. Uh, rule of thumb is five. That's when that, that opso, that offensive coordinator is like, which one's going to join? Which one of them five is going to join my man? I'm talking to that staff in YC and like, let's, let's zero in on that. What do you mean? None of them. No, 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 no. You owe me one because you're at right. five uh, right. or whatever your number is and so on and so forth. That's, and then, well, I don't know. Okay. Let's talk about them. Let's talk about the last five you did. And then you're looking for that one that we can just, how do we get them to, to sign up today? Right. And, and that's literally driving production. That is moving the ball forward. All right. So we've talked about the system generated reports, how you can use them to help drive production and, and train staff into ICs and inform decisions. Now let's move into programs. Do you have any insight on, on the different programs that can be leveraged to help drive production that maybe you didn't use as early as you should have, but now that you have a better understanding of systematic recruiting and how those supporting arms can reduce the lift that a recruiter has to do? Well, I mean, I'm a fan of all of them. Let's start there. Yeah. Uh, you know, pool, CDR, PPC. Um, I would know, I would know as a staff and so I see literally, and this is more on uh, probably more of my initiative is what my sales ratio and closing ratio are was for those. So that when I'm really trying to look for a contract and an interview log, I'm looking for these programs and I know how much of each one uh, I should be expecting, right? We know that we know the percentage of contracts, but how many do I need to get that guy to, to, to become an NWA or that gal? Um, and it's it's been unfortunate this winter not having CDR as much of a CDR without pool. Uh, I'm sorry, without uh, uh, 
boot leave. So we've had a, we've had to rely on some other ones. Um, but PPC and pool have always been tried and true. And if you really do some analysis over the, uh, that I've done over the years, they don't attrit as fast, you know, they, they make it through boot camp better. Um, so I've always been a big proponent of leaning on them. The staff and so I see should know how their programs are doing and what it takes to, to write a contract. And then the command group needs to, to the program manager, let's put it that way. I, we're, we're, we talk about a full, full, um, what do they call it? The full, uh, command group that can do everything full service command full group. service yeah thank you it's getting late in the day i guess <laughs> the full service command group is is great when you go out and you need to start correcting stuff in the seagull counter but those program managers have very individual responsibilities when it comes to that and making sure that hey are those pbcs getting out on time am i getting them back on time you know the opso hey sergeant major what are you doing to make sure that you get uh, poor referrals? How are you mentoring the staff and so I sees to yank referrals out of them? How are you spreading the great thing that's going on over here at RSSY and bringing that to RSSX and spreading that, that word because you're the program manager. Um, we'll, we'll train the command groups and we'll get to that point where we're full service and all of us can go attack that C gap uh, matrix item. But, um, the commander needs to make sure that those program managers are on point and working hard to make sure that, that the, those programs are producing and what they should. Right. Now, all, all great inputs. And I want to just kind of go back. We're talking about back to the basics and you described a couple of things that are not necessarily nested in systematic recruiting. So somebody's going to have to do some nug work on this, right? But they are TTPs. You highlighted one, you should know your sales ratio by source, right? I want to know how many PPCs it takes for me to get a contract or specifically how many PPC interviews translate to a exactly. contract, how many pool referral interviews translate to a contract and how many CDR referrals, even if you want to go by type, but just CDR in general, it's going to inform a different sales ratio. When you're looking at your activity analysis, it's the holistic five to one is typically what you're going to have. Yeah, it's 4.2. Yeah, it's 5.1, what have you. But Five to one is probably a good planning factor, good beer math, swag, if you will, right? And it's not to create sales ratios inside the sales ratio, but it would help inform where you might be able to go get a quick contract, i.e., if it only takes me two interviews from the pool source to generate a contract, work your pool. Right. You know, work your pool. So it goes back to what you were saying as recruiters, you know, they should be living in the prospecting and selling phase with screening in the middle. Well, nothing says you can't do your pool activities, but have them bring a referral. When right. you drop them off at home, stop by their friend's house and talk to them. And, and so that, that's a great TTP to know your sales ratio inside your programs. That comes with experience. And staffing, so I see if you're out there, this is the type of analytical thinking that you need to be doing. This is why you're not on production. This is the, the forward-thinking thought-provoking things that you're doing so you can direct the effort. So that was number one. The second thing you brought up was that attrition by source tends to be lower in those sources, mm -hmm. right? So if, if, this, if the program can do the heavy lifting for you and then ultimately it reduces the amount of lifting I have to do in general because I'm not attriting people, you should be doing that analysis. And if your sources aren't at a better sales ratio or aren't producing attrition at a level that's lower than what you are through all the other sources, I would take a look at why. Right. 
Like, am I sourcing these wrong? What am I doing wrong? Because historically, tried and true, sales ratios are better throughout the programs and attrition is better with pool and CDR. Right. And you can pull that up to any level. That's why it's extremely important. As mundane as as simple as it sounds, your sourcing activity has to be right. It has to be right. It drives every decision that you should make uh, when you're analyzing your numbers and planning the way ahead. And I, I think a lot more people listening to this know this more than we do. We're in the, I need to find a quick contract mode. We are no longer in the, we'll work the program as it goes and we've got plenty of time. I got depth and holds and, and reality on the street right now is we've got to get savvy with the tools that we have. We're not, we're not creating new tools. Uh, not, not in a way that's just going to start magically making contracts, but the tools you have, the better you get, the faster you will contract. It is, it is uh, tried and true. If you can get better with your PPCs, if you can get better with your pool, if you can get better at prospecting uh, recruiter generated sources, you will contract faster. If you get better at processing because you screen well, you will write contracts faster. And those are the tools you have right now. That is what is at your, 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 uh, your disposal. Right. Not only will you contract faster, you will contract better. Yes. More talented, more capable, right? Use the tools that you have. Don't go out looking for a new tool to the point that you, I don't think there's some magic tool that we haven't seen or that's out there that we could grab. And if implemented would just make the ERP process any better than it already is. It goes back to what you said. The only thing hard about recruiting is the work. Yes. And you got to put that in. And those that don't use these tools have to do more hard work. Yes, that's true. Right. And so it's our job as the command group to remove barriers and improve proficiency in all of these areas for our staff into ICs. And you don't have to do it for all of them per se, right? Go back to my example. We had 15 RSSs. Five of them, we didn't need to do anything. We could give them the annual plan and leave them alone. See you in September. That's right. They, they would follow their contract placement based on where they had their ship holes, based on what the ship mission was. Within the quality parameters, everything they would do was fine. Give them the annual mission, leave them alone. The middle five would need some small refinements along the way. And then the bottom five, you've, you, you would have to devote 80% of your attention on them, right? Figure out who they are and train them. And over time, when you continue to do that, then it becomes instead of five, 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 it becomes six, four, five. You know, you, right. you reduce that bottom five to four and then to three and then to two. And now you're just in a you know, the recurring cycle of when you get a new staff into I see you got to spin them up. But if you do that consistently, eventually you've got a bench of A gunners that are coming up that already understand the, the system. They already understand that. And then it becomes a just a recurring. Now you just got to maintain it. Mm-hmm. Right. But getting to that is where a lot of hard work comes from. And some of us just aren't there yet. What are your thoughts on, you know, looking ahead? We talk about looking ahead. Shipping is king. And if shipping is to be administrative, right, that's the common term that we hear, shipping should be administrative. Contract placement is the key to that, that if you're not deliberately placing contracts where they belong and they stick, shipping is never going to be administrative. Did you ever get involved in contract placement as the recruiting instructor or, or as a staff into I see, you know, what type of insights do you have on that? Oh, absolutely. And uh, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, 
as the RS ops chief, I was gapped and I was the RS ops for quite a while. Um, and even when I wasn't gapped, uh, the first one, uh, had me in his lane quite a bit. Um, Shipping will never be administrative. I, I don't know where that ever came from in recruiting duty. Uh, I'm not a believer in that. Shipping is a beast. Uh, it's a full-time job. Uh, I include pool development in shipping because if we don't get them to the IST standards uh, and get the things done in the pool that we need to, we can't ship them. Um, and I think maybe that's where the, the old uh, adage was, do it all in the pool and the day they go shipping is administrative. Yeah, it's there's administration involved with it, but... Uh, a there's lot of it. A, there's a lot of moving parts um, to shipping as well. Contract placement is everything. The pool build, right, we're, is what we're talking about. We're talking about pool build by type, make, model. Um, you got to put the right contracts in uh, at the right time in order to, A, develop them so they can ship or in time to ship. Uh, as we saw this year with level load shipping, I think everyone got a healthy dose of, oh, crap. Uh, I need a kid to ship you know, in three weeks, um, which we haven't had in a long time. Uh, but a lot of RSs out there were, were in a direct market. Um, so hopefully, I would hope that that gave them an appreciation for having the right people in the right place, prepared to ship uh, well ahead of time or as, as much as humanly possible. Um, and that goes back to, it, it always goes back to discipline, right? So let's go all the way back to, uh, we've done the annual plan, but now we're giving monthly mission letters. And the monthly mission letter tells you what you're going to contract by flavor and where you're going to place it. Um, and there's about 10 people in in that chain that any of them lose a little bit of the discipline and patience, you won't get the contracts where you want to. And is it, a, is it zero uh, or zero fail? Like You're going to not get the right contracts, but that can't be the majority of the time. Right. Right. So you give a plan to your staff and CYCs or that, that mission letter and they give you that missionary statement. Well, hey, you owe me a female this month, RSS. Well, I've, hey, Opso, have, have they done the prospecting 90 days ago? Did they do it 60 days ago? Where's this, where's this female coming from that you magically need now? now? That's where the annual plan comes in. The staff and CYCs and the operations officer should, should revisit that. Uh, mostly when it comes to those micro missions of females and reservists. But um, we're always selling to that. We're always trying to place that uh, at the RSS and the, the operations level, because if we don't, especially females and reservists, you're going to have 60 Marines looking for one thing and not looking for the 60 things that you really need. Right. Right. Cause now I've got to turn my whole force onto this female shipper I need in three weeks because I wasn't disciplined in my contract placement, which means I wasn't disciplined in my prospecting, which means I wasn't disciplined in my planning. 100%. Right? Um, and now i got to turn 60 Marines towards that female. Right. I still need 65 regular males. Right. But I have no time to get those. And that's when you start seeing the, that's when you start seeing the edges start to fray at an RSS because that becomes, it, it becomes a crisis. And for every crisis that you have, another one's right behind it. It's a hard, hard uh, dive to pull out of. Right. Um, and it, but if you can understand that process, what I just said was the process. You have to go all the way back to the plan. You have to go all the way back to the annual plan. I know in April I need a female. I'm going to give it to you in your April monthly mission letter, but you should be prospecting for it here. Am I tracking that? Am I asking if you are? Am I looking at your prospecting? Right. And, and, and it's... 
there, there's some full-time job to that. Uh, but it's self-preservation. Right. Right. It's, it's getting the right things because shipping is king. And if you, it, that's the only reason we do everything else is to get them to boot camp. Right. Flavor. Uh, type model series is one of my old bosses used to say. Right. Um, and if you don't do that, you don't make mission. Right. And that's what it's all about. Yes. You know, you, you brought up the keyword discipline. If you know, there, there's a lot of people in the process from the, the time the mission letter goes out to what actually shows up at MEPS and hits the board via a tag, right? If any one of them wavers in their discipline, your contract placement's going to be out of whack. And you traced it all the way back to monthly plan. Right. But as the command group, you have to be smart enough to know that you might pay the lease this month via contracting. But if you're not putting them in the right spot, shipping is going to be extremely painful. At some point, you're going to pay that in another way. Right. If you go to a place and you find that contract placement is good where they have that discipline, I will show you an RS command group that's all working hard. They are synchronized. And they are focused on the end state, which is improving quality of life and quality for the RS as a whole. The way I describe it, you talk about make, model, and series. And the way that I try to articulate this to OPSOs at the OPS course, and for the benefit of the listeners I will share, is imagine that you want to throw a Super Bowl party, right? And at this Super Bowl party, you want to have some wings. You know, what else do you need with wings? Well, I need some blue cheese to go with my wings, and I would like this type of chip chips. I want, you know, this type of soda. I want these things. And I come up with my grocery list, right? That's my contract placement on my monthly mission letter. And I hand that to my wife, and I'm like, hey, I want to throw a Super Bowl party, and these are the things that I need to make that successful. And she goes to the grocery store and pretty much says, eh, I'm going to get him this. I'm going to get him that. I'm going to get him this. I'm going to get him that. And she comes back with stuff that does not align with my shopping list. My Super Bowl party is not going to be successful because <laughs> she came back with all the wrong stuff, right? Opsos, if you're supposed to make a ham sandwich, stop letting roast beef inside the cart. Stop letting, you know, the different type of bread if that's not what you're looking for. Because ultimately, at the end of that assembly line, you have to make this make model series. And if we're allowing different things to come in that don't attribute to that, we're going to have the wrong car at the end of the assembly line. Right. But it's important to note that it can't be at checkout when you don't pay for that roast beef. Right. A hundred percent. You can't, you can't stop it at the, well, I've taken the, I've, I've said it was an interview. Right. I've accepted it as an NBA, but it doesn't match your mission letter. You can't write it. Right. You've got to try, trace it all the way back to however long it takes that person to write a contract and that, right. and that flavor. Right. If you don't want them to write it, then they shouldn't be prospecting for it. Right. Or really what you wanted. I should say it the other way. If that's what you want, right. they should be prospecting for that and they yes. should be able to speak intelligently about their plan to get it. Right. Um, so it, it, oftentimes I've seen where it's like, well, I'll just... I'm not going to let you write that then. And I'm not going to write you. I'm not going to let you write the contract you brought me. Like you've let that work go on for a long time. Right. And now you want to cut off of the knees. You should have cut them off of the knees. Well, before that, and that's why I said, it's not a, it's not a zero defect. Uh, right. You're always going to have some weird stuff happening, but 
at the RS level, you have more tools. You, you, you might have an RS that wasn't on for a female that writes one, and, you know, vice versa. There's, there's a little bit more uh, wiggle room, but you want to instill that discipline. You can use your, it's obviously doctrine how we do the planning, and then you can use your substandard performance. You can use your awards order and things like that to incentivize maintaining that discipline and getting the right contracts. Right. You know, using your analogy of like, hey, you don't want to catch that at checkout, right? right. I, I'm looking at checkout as not necessarily the day that they go to MEPS or that I'm declaring the NWA. Checkout to me is if I'm in month and need that, right? Oh, yeah. Like if, if the first time they saw this requirement in their monthly letter was that month, shame on me. Like as the ops, I've got the full vision of the pool board. Gaps that are 120 days out, I'm putting in your mission letter. And you're going to build prospecting plans to get to that, right? And the CEO signs that. And yes, I'm going to do opso business when you call me and you don't have that. I'm saying no. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's the opso in me, right? But the CEO might say yes. So call him. Mm -hmm. And then the CEO is going to come to me and say, opso, stop being an asshole and let him write the contract, <laughs> right? But that's okay because we got some time and space. He's going to get an additional 90 days to find that. And then this next 90 days, now the RI is engaged. Like, okay, let me go and see. Let me look at their monthly plan and see if they develop the prospecting that you're mm -hmm. describing. Do they have a prospecting plan that supports that mission? What type of training do they need? What type of resources do they need? Sergeant Major, what pool or CDR Marine can I employ to help solve that challenge? XO. What can you do to help us with a, high, with a high school talk, with NROTC, whatever? What do you have that can help support this mission? Now we've got everybody trying to solve that problem 120, 90, 60 days out right. so that we can get them into the pool before that gap. Now, that's, that's in a perfect world where you can always forecast out, right? Kids are going to go bad in pool. Things are going to pop up, and that's where you need the help of the other people. But if... And that's where the daily management of the interview log across everybody ensuring that there is a good gender split, that there is a yes. good focus on reserves and all of those things always so that you are prepared in time of a crisis to reach onto that tree and pull something off. Exactly right. All right. Anything else that you want to talk? We've been going for some time and, and this is a good topic. We could, we could go on, we could go on talking about back to the basics for hours. Is there anything else that you want to cover before, just, we, before we cut this? Yeah, I think the last thing, and it's, it's uh, I think it's becoming an issue or a gap that we need to address very, very soon. And that's, you know, we talked about uh, some reports. We talked about the interview log, but it's, it's, it's uh, NWAs and the NWA log. I'm old enough to remember um, before Depp and Holds and, and whatnot that the only way that you could really, or maybe the, the best way, maybe not the only way, the best way that you could uh, identify or measure an RS's or an RSS's uh, momentum was their NWA log. What do they have um, that has been sold, scheduled, screened, and they can process to, to place in the pool. Um, me personally, this is just Jared's honest opinion. I think we got real cushy with Debenholds over the last nine years or however many, they, however, however long it's been out there. I think it's 2013. Um, 
And what we've done as an organization is we slid to the depth and hold as our measurement of momentum. My heartburn with that has always been, and I'll, I'll full full disclosure, I've never been in a position to be 30 or 60 days depth and held. And I think that's going to be advantageous to me in the next couple of years. But so I speak out of one side of my mouth. I don't know what, how good life really was at, at that 60% or 60 day debinal. Maybe it was great and it was worth every bit of it. Um, it for, definitely, com- it, for the commanders. Yeah, it definitely sure. gave somebody uh, control. I know it was transparent to the people that we rely on the most, uh, that those camps and recruiters, but it was foolish of us. And it always has been foolish of us to use that as a measure of success. Um, a real easy example of why is because it masks discharges. And I'm not going to get into that, but that's, that's a whole thing. We get a full bank account of good contracts over here, but we're not paying rent over here with the bad ones. Right. Um, but it's the, it's how much do you have coming down the pipeline? How much power and contracting power do you have? The only way to find that out is what you have sold, scheduled, and screened. Because when you look at debt and holds, I'm like, ah, he's got 20 debt and holds. That's great. But you don't have any idea what it took them to get that. Right. You don't know how many PCs they lost. You don't know how many ASFAB failures. You just know the end result. You just know that there was 20 kids that made it through all of the, the obstacles to enlisting and jumped through the window. And that's why there's, that's not what, that, that could be a reason why you saw them disappear so fast. Because as the market got tougher, the environment got tougher, we weren't paying attention to the obstacles that were stopping us from contracting, which is that, that whatever moment in time that person becomes an NWA to the moment in time that they become a contract. And there's a lot that can go wrong in there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot. And when, right. everything go, and when those things are going wrong, there's a lot to be identified to go and fix and go and train to and get better at. And if all you're ever looking at is the day they contracted and you don't have any idea the losses and the bloodbath that, w- that got to that one contract, right? you have no idea how, how good that RS is. And, and maybe I'm being somewhat dramatic, but as you see on the daily ticket right now in Mickrick, from the top down, from region down, from Mickrick down, there are some stations that are struggling. And, there was, and, and just one year ago, they were two months ahead. How is that possible? Right? It's because we're, we haven't been paying attention to that NWA. And I think, it, I think what we need to do, when you're talking about getting back to the basics and surviving in-month recruiting, as, as much as most people don't want to say that, I'm old enough to remember when everybody started on zero every month and everyone made mission. We could do it. It can be done. Um, is you have to know month in, month out, what do you have in your NWA log? What are you carrying into the month? How many more do you need? How good are you in medical? How good are you on the ASFAB? How good are you at PC? And what do we need to work on to get that? I think we're going to start seeing Mickrick shift back to a focus on that's where your strength is in an RS, is how well they can do that, right? And you can back off the NWA and, and look at prospecting interviews that we talked about earlier. And you can go forward and see if their placement's right and stuff like that. But, it, man, if they can't get a PC to save their life, they're going to have a real rough go of it starting at zero and have to make 80 by the end of the month. Right. Um, and, and it got to the point where I, 
what my experience was, you had to explain that on your restatement. Here's how many open NWAs I have. Here's how many more I need. It used to be, uh, I'd have to find the document. It used to be part of the phase line briefs that people would do. Like, this is how many NWAs I have. This is how many more I need. This, and it was a whole equation. And that's mm-hmm. what we talked about. Course what do you have you working? Yep. Not what do you have depth and health? And that's been the difference in the last 10 years. Right. Is we've talked about what do you have depth and health? Well, who gives a shit? If I don't have anything else in my NWA log, I'm going to use all of that. Right. I'm going to take every bit of that and I'm not going to have, and there's a problem that I'm not looking at because I still feel good at the end of the month when I got mine. Um, and I, I think we really need to shift back and start restating to the RS, restating to the district and getting that feedback of here's what my NWA log looks like. Here's how fast I can write contracts. It's mathematically impossible to fail. You can take those, that data and you can almost pinpoint the day you'll make mission. Right. It's crazy. Um, so that was probably my last parting shot of going back to the basics. Let's stop talking about debt and hold so much. They're great. I don't want to get rid of them. Uh, they, they're, they're cost effective. If we can get some calendar control, fine. But every day I watch another RS not being able to rely on. Right. And if we don't shift our focus on what's really important, the NWA log, you're going to continue to go downhill. Right. So, you know, we tell, we tell recruiters, we tell staff and SOICs that you, you can't live on old business. You have to generate new business. And that's what you're describing at the recruiting station level, right? Dep and hold is old business. What are you doing to generate new business? And the best way to tell that at the RS level is look at the health of your NWA log. Yes, right? sir. For the staff and SOIC, it's the health of my interview log. For the RS, it's the health of my NWA log. And we have to get back to those basics and analyzing those tools and using those, those tried and true formulas to determine. And if you know those, you can predict with almost certainty when you're going to make it and conversely when you're not. <laughs> right? But yes, the sir. good news is if you're doing your weekly analysis and you're doing these things, you can make these course and speed adjustments in month and not have to wait till the activity analysis batches on the last day of the month to determine what went wrong. Right. Like, you know, all that data. And yes, we made changes in McChris to where weekly, when you're inputting the weekly activities into the input achieve screen, it will generate your activity analysis so that you can use that in month to make these adjustments. So you don't have to create a new product outside the system. Right. That's why we did that right to the benefit of the RSs. Well, it's been a pleasure. It's been awesome sitting down talking to you about this. I love talking about back to the basics and really what we're talking about, systematic recruiting and doing all the things that we did coming up, you know, when we were young in this game. And I love that we're going back to that and that we're focusing on keeping the main thing, the main thing and driving production. Appreciate you coming on and look forward to talking to you in the future. Thanks, sir. Thanks for having me.